Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast, to you at home, to me here recording, and to you, (laughs) Katrina. It's been far too long. Yeah. Good to be back. Hopefully getting over some of our burnout and getting back into the swing of things, apparently relearning how to do a podcast. Yeah, that's important. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. It's been crazy. So, yeah, if you're listening to this episode, it means that we made it through all of our backlog of editing and hopefully things will be moving smoothly from here on out. Listen, let's not jinx it, though. (laughs) Let's just, you know, we'll be going with the flow and hopefully that flow is swift as a coursing river carrying us expediently downstream The stream of podcasting at regular (laughs) intervals. We hope. We'll see. But listen, uh, we kind of mentioned this, I think, when we did the live, that life has been, you know, crazy ups and downs. Some of it good and wonderful. We, Jeff and I had both gone back to school. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, as of this recording, has officially finished his master's degree, which is an absolutely incredible accomplishment. And we're so proud of you, Jeffrey. <laughs> Thank you. It feels good and surreal. But also, I'm glad that we get you back. I hope, yeah. Hopefully now I get to monopolize more of your time. Perfect. Just kidding. I guess your family should have like first dibs. Yeah, you can share. It's fine. So, yeah, personal like family stuff has gone on with us. Health stuff, just everything. And, you know, it's just been like a lot. So... We're going to hopefully get back into the swing of things. And just a big thank you to all of our listeners who've been really gentle on us. We really appreciate the people who are still avid listeners who encourage us no matter what we're doing. I'm I'm seriously so happy every time when we like post an episode and that there's still people <laughs> that are out there listening. Uh, we're really close to reaching our 100 episode milestone. Technically, yeah, crazy close. Technically, we already have uh, with other things we've posted, like the audio from our live events. So that's really exciting. But, you know, we're keeping a different official count of what 100 episodes is. So I think this one, when we post it, will be number 94. So getting close, which is crazy to think that we've done uh, like almost 100 of these full episodes. Seriously. I remember when we first started the podcast, one of our friends had asked, like, what are you going to do when you run out of, um, like, fairy tales to retell? Which, (laughs) adorable. Adorable. (laughs) We are going to be dead. Yeah. (laughs) But before that ever happens. We're almost to the 200,000 downloads milestone, which is also completely wild to me. Oh, yeah. We we thought that we were going to have like our moms and like their friends be the only ones listening to our podcast. We were like, if we get 50, like 50 downloads an episode, 50 people an episode was like almost unfathomably 
large. You know what I mean? We're like, yeah. that would be crazy. Like, how would 50 people even find out about this? Yeah, like, that'd be, that'd be absolutely wild. And then it's like, in four years, we've gotten almost 200,000 downloads. And so it's like, yeah. just thank Pretty you wild. to everybody. Yeah, because yeah. that's not us downloading it that many times. I mean, I'm trying to download as many as I can to <laughs> bump the numbers up. But it's you guys are doing the heavy lifting on this. We really appreciate people sharing in the fun and the joy that we have had the last like four years uh, with all these like folk tales and fairy tales and talking about the cultural issues and history, a lot of history, a lot of going over like the classics. So truly, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you so much to everybody. We're excited to uh, be getting over our burnout, refocusing our attention and I also hope that you all enjoyed the Little Mermaid special. Uh, that took us several weird attempts to create. <laughs> and then it took me forever to edit. It was a really fun episode. And so I'm kind of sad that it released late and that we had a very long burnout break. And then yeah. it didn't end up being a mermaid episode. But, you know, I'm happy to be getting back on track. And I'm also happy that it was such a good time recording it. And yeah. Hans Christian Andersen episodes are always long and silly and heartfelt. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm happy about. I am, you know, I know this isn't the best thing for basically anyone else, but for me who forgot completely about the recording of that episode <laughs> by the time I was able to listen to it, it was like the first episode of our podcast that I'd listened to in a long time. And I felt like what it must feel like to be our listeners, except for <laughs> hearing my own voice saying things that I have no recollection of saying. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. I was like, wow, this is such a fun podcast. I love our podcast. So it was nice to like be able to get into the mind of a very, very biased listener because you know, obviously <laughs> I love the host of this podcast so much that it's you know impossible to be unbiased. But I, you know, I really enjoyed that episode and I'm glad that it took so long to get out so I could enjoy it. <laughs> From a, a fresh slate. There, there are several episodes that I feel that way about where like if I went back and listened to them, I'm sure I'd have like kind of a, a similar thought of like, wow, I don't I don't even remember telling this story. I don't remember learning this story. I don't remember forgetting this story. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, I was on the edge of my seat waiting to hear how the story ended, even though I'm listening to myself having already heard it in the past. <laughs> oh, you're like, whose who's fishnet stockings did this guy put on? If you want to know, go listen to the Little Mermaid episode. <laughs> also, announcements. We're getting closer to September, and September has 31 days, which means it's pretty likely that there could be a fifth Friday in it. And as a matter of fact, there is oh. September 29th. So we will probably be doing an Instagram Live that day for a fifth Friday Fable Fest at 8.30 p.m. So September 29th, 8.30 p.m., fifth Friday Fable Fest on Instagram Live at the fairy underscore tellers. Hope to see you there. Yeah. Also for that fifth Friday, maybe Fable Fest, we're going to let our Patreon patrons select what topic we want to talk about or... It might not even be fables. I've got a couple ideas for things. And especially because the last time we did a Fifth Friday Fable Fest, I had said, oh, we might we might do something else. And, you know, we were burnt out for so long. And then what was funny was like that was we came back in the middle of our burnout to do that. And Jeff and I hadn't even talked to each other for like, <laughs> yeah, I think it was like six weeks or something like that yeah more, because yeah. we had both been in and out of town and so it was like the first time that we would got to like chat and catch up which is 
so wild to do a an episode together when we hadn't had a ton of time to talk about it. But yeah, we also hadn't been able to put up a thing for our patrons to vote on what the topic was going to be. So this time we're going to make up for that uh, by letting our patrons pick what we're going to be talking about. Nice. So kind of us, <laughs> but mostly so kind of them for supporting us on Patreon. So now getting into the episode for today, we're very excited about it. So before we start the episode, trigger warnings. The biggest one is for racism. Racism is actually going to be a very major theme of why we're retelling the stories that I've picked. Not, of course, because we like racism, but because if you ignore it as a topic within fairy tales, that becomes a lie of convenience and comfort for the people who don't want to discuss it. And so there will be an ongoing conversation about racism and the themes of that inside this tale. So that's the biggest uh, trigger warning. Also, child assault and death, which I don't want to spoil the ending of that story. But yeah, it's gruesome. So and so a general violence trigger warning as well as almost always with this podcast. <laughs> Woo. So we have been talking about Snow White, one of the most famous fairy tale types in the world. Or at least we were up until we took a very long break from podcasting. <laughs> but this episode is going to be our first ever two-part episode. What? It It's going to become very clear later on. But we have too much tail for one episode. And so I'm going to be setting up a frame narrative and Jeff is going to be retelling a tale in this episode. And then the next episode, we're going to be telling the next part of the frame narrative, a tale inside of that, and then closing out the frame. And yeah, it's, it was just, it's too much tale for one episode. And so tales on tales on tales. Yep. That's, that's what we provide. <laughs> so just so that people know, <laughs> when we end this episode, uh, the frame narrative is going to be unresolved, but don't worry. Don't panic. That's just good. You know, that's just good podcasting. Leave them on a cliffhanger. Leave <laughs> more. We're going to do that from now on. Yeah. Just stop mid story. Got to <laughs> want to hear the rest. Got to listen to the next episode. Like for part two. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to our our Snow White series that we've been doing, we've talked about some elements that pop up in the stories. Stories like the Trojan War that include women fighting over the title of the most beautiful or the fairest of them all. Mm. And apples as rewards. Apples as knowledge, apples as the cause of death. Apples as mystic talismans that keep away <laughs> medical professionals. <laughs> exactly. We've talked about dormant heroines. Wait, no, it wasn't dormant heroines, was it? Yeah. Was that the term for it? Yeah, dormant heroines. Dormant because they're like sleeping. Uh, because they're like, because sleeping beauty are also confusing. dormant heroines. Right. And those tail types are like related to each other because you've got Sleeping Beauty and in Snow White, they, she's also a Sleeping Beauty who has like some kind of curse of death. Yeah. And so, yeah, together, those tail, they're called dormant heroines. 
<laughs> Which I love. Which I, I love. I love that. I just couldn't, I was unsure if that was the phrase, but I love that phrase. Dormant heroines. It's such a weird one. Oh, ac- academics. Gotta love them. Um, so yeah, we've talked about these dormant heroines, even when this leads to polygamy, which again, the story of Gold Tree and Silver Tree, fascinating. Yeah. Especially that before we could even tell the story of Gold Tree and Silver Tree, we had to go to like Mary de France, like to talk about her tales and how like these medieval stories then got like layered into things. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have not been keeping up with these, with these Snow White episodes, you're really missing out because they've been pretty baller, top tier, top notch, S tier fairy tellers content. So yeah, definitely worth a listen, definitely worth a a re-listen because I know it's been a long time since you've listened to one because it's been a long time (laughs) since we've recorded one. Do you know what's crazy? I know people have been listening to these tales because our mirror episode, Magic Mirrors and Divinations episode. (gasps) That was such a good one too. I forgot about that. It's one of our most listened to episodes this whole year. Yeah. Nice. And so, which good, that one was a good episode. It was a really good one. So today we're going to be looking at another element that has become so intricately tied to this tale type that people recognize it anytime it pops up in popular culture. And that is the tricolors of fairy tales. We're talking the red, the white, and the black. (laughs) My brain filled in blue as that last one because i'm a dyed in the wool american patriot that's what i am oh my gosh. you're like red white and blue yeah. and i'm like black red. and you're like wait what i was like oh yeah we're on the fairy tellers podcast not whatever other podcast yeah, that what other be. podcasts are you listening to as, this is the only podcast i listen to these days but the red white and black and i've said this on a bunch of other episodes before and it's one of those like fascinating facts and i know you're gonna get into it but just like that fun linguistic fact of black, white, and red being the first colors typically that like languages come up with words for. Yeah. Black and white seems kind of like it makes sense, but like red being the third one is is so fascinating to me. And it's like fairly consistent across many yeah. like cultures and languages that those are the first colors. And then, you know, they fill in in an interesting, like kind of also semi-specific order after that as well. It's just like, oh, fascinating. It's like one of my favorite linguistic facts to bring up to people Yeah. Uh, when I really want to bore them or test whether they're, in fact, going to uh, vibe with me or not. <laughs> That's an excellent uh, way to check if somebody's going to nerdily vibe with you. You're like, do they appreciate it when I pepper the conversation with linguistic facts? <laughs> Or are they like, hmm, no, not this man. Uh, Yeah, no, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, I was just going to say that like relevant to today's topic is that we've talked about how calling this tail type Snow White is misleading since the element of a Snow White heroine isn't necessary to the story. In fact, in none of the tales so far that we have encountered doing like these podcast episodes on snow white on snow white yeah have we encountered the tricolors of red white and black so maria tatar in her book the fairest of them all states what becomes clear in reviewing the Grimm's source material as well as variants from cultures the world over is how the white as snow red as blood and black as ebony mantra is a local detail rather than a part of the story's deep structure And that's what we're going to be talking about today is 
how much it is like a local detail. It's not part of like the deep structure of the tale, but it has ended up in everybody's mind who's familiar with the the story of Snow White. And obviously on this podcast, we talk about how those elements got in there. That's the whole point of like the series that we're doing. It's kind of what we do. Yeah. It's kind of what we're known for. Kind of our thing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But interestingly, we are not going to be telling any Snow White tales or ATU 709. Because why would we do a Snow White episode with actual Snow White tale types? <laughs> that would be so stupid. Because <laughs> that's what would be a predictable thing to do. That's what the people would be expecting. And you know what we like to do? We like to keep the people on our on their toes. We like to say, hey, we're going to do Mermaid this year and then not. We like to be like, hey, we're talking about Snow White, but not tell any Snow White tales. That's how we keep the people engaged. Never let them know your next move. <laughs> but as is customary with this podcast, we are going back in time to talk about the very early history of the elements in modern day Snow White. So before the Grimm's retold the tale and Disney took that tale to bring it to the screen, obviously this story had a long history and so do all of the elements in the tales. And some of those elements, you know, obviously existed before the, you know, the tale that we know it as. Just like, you know, how we were talking about mirrors and divination and before there were mirrors, there was like the moon. So we're we're all on the same page. This the premise for this episode is the same even if we're not talking about Snow White tales. Mhm. So, first, we're going to talk about the colors themselves before we mix them into the story elements. And at the end of the storytelling for today, we are going to touch on color meanings within cultures a little bit. But I don't want us to get too deep like into that before we start in the episode because we've got some really cool, interesting stories to talk about. So, yeah, we've talked on this podcast before, Jeff, like said earlier, about how interesting it is that in many languages, some of the first color words are white, black and red or light, dark and red. And because we're a podcast of nerds and research, or at least we try to be, <laughs> we're going to pop some scholarship onto these claims just so that people know in context where this little like fun factoid comes from that Jeff likes to apparently drop as like a party party information. I was going to say like, you must be really fun at a party, but I know for a fact that you are very fun at a party Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, because you bring, you bring the the fun facts with you. Yeah. Party facts. (laughs) So whenever you hear Whenever you hear about languages and color, the research is most likely coming from the work of Brent Berlin and Paul Kay from a paper that they wrote in 1969. So Berlin and Kay were linguistic anthropologists who were trying to discover the similarities and differences in how cultures speak about color to give us an idea of how different cultures perceive color. So areas of cultural influence, this is like a a term that linguists use, areas of cultural emphasis within a language, they become easier to see when you realize how many words for something a culture has. People have probably heard the factoid that's not really a factoid. That's like Inuits have a hundred words for snow. 
They don't. <laughs> um, there's a lot of different cultures up in the Arctic Circle like region that people kind of like all lump together as one and then say, oh, they have a hundred words for snow and they they do not. But they do have more words to describe different types of snow than cultures that don't have or don't interact with snow as much as they do, which makes sense like when you think about yeah. it because they have to describe dry snow versus like wet snow old snow like hanging snow like just to describe the world around them they need those words and that makes sense but anytime you see this amount of language around a topic such as snow it shows a cultural emphasis present within the language itself like it's it's and is thus relevant to that culture and so berlin and Kay were looking at language surrounding color to kind of figure out how important color is to different cultures and like language itself like how we perceive the world and our like worldview and my biggest worry anytime we have like a little factoid that also gets pushed out around the internet really easily a, a lot is that sometimes a little bit of knowledge without side context and nuance like gets people making claims or saying stuff that they don't fully understand like i think mm -hmm. i mentioned on a different podcast episode that i heard somebody say that like did you know that the ancient greeks couldn't see the color blue <laughs> Yeah. And it was because they didn't have recorded a distinctive word for the color blue, but they could see the color blue. <laughs> yeah. Their eyes, the structure of their eyes like was not um different. So, if it feels like we're getting into like the weeds on linguistics right now, like I do apologize. But just so that people know about Berlin and Kay and their theory. So they were looking for a theory of universals because people at that time period were often looking for universals to explain like the world and that we must, we must all have like a, a structure of subconscious that like we all as humanity shared, which is like a whole different subject and like argument. But anyway, so they came up with these different stages that they discovered that languages followed. And stage one was, languages with two color terms black and white those were like the first two that people would come up with is black and white or dark and light so these opposites stage two was having three color terms and it was black white and red that's like what it was and then it's it, mm -hmm. it's interesting what some of like the other ones are because it's like stage three is either green or yellow and then stage four is that you have both present. And then five is blue. And usually before there's a word for blue, it gets lumped in with green. And so stage five is where you separate blue from the word green. And then six is brown, which I thought was like interesting that it's that it's so low down on like the list. Yeah. And then stage seven is languages with eight or more color terms like purple, pink, orange, and gray. So just so that people know very quickly what's controversial like today about some of their findings from the 1960s is that they also were labeling languages as advanced or simple 
depending on where they landed on this spectrum. And at that point in time, it was common for anthropologists to be trying to figure out like what which cultures are advanced cultures and which ones are simple cultures and trying to say like, oh, you can see a level of like simplicity in their culture. Like they were still living in a simpler time because they they thought that cultures would move in this like linear prog- progression, which it's like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, obviously it's very tricky to say that something's progressing just because it's changing. It doesn't mean it's changing in a for in a forwardly direction because what is a forwardly direction? But anyway. Yeah. So that was really controversial or that's controversial today. And so there's some like nuance to throw into what they were saying, especially because a lot of their findings were very colonialist or Western centric. For instance, they had said, obviously, from their point of view, that English was an advanced language, even though some of the rules that they had for labeling that English does not fall into. For instance, one of the rules was that the color word couldn't be borrowed from another language. And in that case, then English does not make it to stage five. It stops at stage four because Mm. we have black, white, red, green, and yellow, but blue is borrowed from French. So English then would be considered by their criteria, like a simple language, not an advanced language. But of course, since they were... Living in the West, Western anthropologists, they do want to still say, oh, English is advanced. But even by their own like rules, it it like it doesn't work. Doesn't pass muster. Exactly. Or mustard yellow. <laughs> that was so stupid. <laughs> was so stupid, but I loved it. We're keeping it. <laughs> Quick aside. So finding cultural universals is hard. And also it's always going to be problematic to try and like rank cultures and cultural aspects and say like, oh, this one is more advanced as opposed to this one that is like primitive, which that that was another term that they would use when they were like describing uh, cultures is primitive, which, yeah, no, again, yeah. like it's, it's bad. So all of that linguistic anthropology might not be here nor there for this episode, except to say that if you hear the claim that most languages come up with the terms of black, white, and red, which I know you've heard that claim because we've made that claim on this podcast. (laughs) Um, You'll know where the claim comes from and that it is true. The why behind why those are the first three is a lot of like speculation, but it's super, super interesting. And it basically comes down to the necessity to describe the world around us. Yeah. Because obviously like light and dark, black and white, you know, our world, our days are divided into these two things. The moon gets divided over and over into these two parts as well. And so like opposites need words, big and small, dead and alive. So like, it just makes sense that there would be words for light and dark, black and white. Yeah. Contrast is the spice of life. We need difference. Yeah. We need black and white. Yeah. But red is a really important color to describe things too. The most obvious reason is blood. <laughs> for humans mm. to live, other animals have to die and also plants, but there's less red involved in killing plants. <laughs> for humans to create more humans, menstruation and birth there's 
some definite red in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So red is there for life to happen and when death happens. So when your blood is gone, your life is gone, red needs to be flowing. But also to describe some plants and animals that are poisonous. Red is a signal to a lot of other animals that they don't want to eat something. It's a warning. No. That's, this is like the part that is so fascinating to me. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but just like red does not seem like the next logical choice when thinking of what seems pretty obvious that we need words to describe the world around us. Black and white, light and dark, like that does totally make sense. Like if there's only two things that you need to talk about, like when it's dark outside, when it's light outside, whatever, like that makes sense. Yeah. Red, I do get this logic, you know what I mean? Like red being an important color. And there is something to do with another thing I've, I remember hearing, I don't have any sources to back me up on this off the top of my head. If I'm wrong, feel free to tell me. But I, I heard this somewhere talking about like the way that you're like the rods and cones and whatever in your eyes, human eyes work. Like we are very sensitive to the color red for some reason, because it's like, you know, evolution, whatever. It's, it's, it is important because of this. Reason, yeah. Potentially. But it's like, I, I would think that the next color would be, you know, a color that we see a lot. Like, Green, where I live, if you look around, that's the predominant color you're going to see when you look out your window is green. Other places, that's not the case. You know, brown or like yellow, sandy kind of a color. Yeah, where I live in the desert, yeah. (laughs) Or blue, you know. Most of what you see is taken up by this big blue dome above your head. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say what is interesting about green even like out in the desert is that like you, you notice it. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. you want to like find it. And so it is a like, okay, that makes sense that like green. That green would still be an important yeah. color. Because it's like green is living things. Like again, talking about plants, you know. Yeah. When you're trying to find some plants to eat or trying to find animals to eat that you know have to eat plants in order to survive, you go towards the green because that's where life is going to be. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, okay, this is something that I, I'm going to need that I like want to have. This is a good sign. But what's interesting, like bringing up like the sky and that it is like if you are looking at your horizon, like we all know that like if we walk outside and we look up into the horizon, the sky takes up a lot of space in our view. And so you would think that like, oh, the color of the sky would be a color that since there's so much of it. Yeah. But it also is something that you wouldn't necessarily need words for to describe because the sky is either light or dark. It's either daytime or nighttime, like if you're Mm. talking about that. And I mean, what's crazy, too, if you think about it, is that even in dawn and dusk, the sky isn't blue. That's true. It changes like throughout the day. The colors that are in the sky like change like a lot throughout the day, but also, so if you were, if you needed language to describe the sky, you would probably just be trying to describe the time of day. And yeah, there are other words you don't for that. Need, yeah. It's like, you don't need blue. Cause it's like, it's just for that, like the word sky kind of would work. Yeah. You. You're like, Oh, the sky is looking sky-like right now. Yeah. Oh, look and up those white puffy clouds in front yeah, of it. Yeah. Look up in the sky. It's full of clouds Uh if you yeah if you just needed to describe the state of the sky is it daytime is it nighttime like is it light is it dark and so even though yes we do see the color blue a lot it's not that important to like actually talk about it or to have a a word for it yeah that is uh, fascinating because it is interesting even thinking about with the sky it's like some of the things oh you know you think of that uh 
I don't know. It's a, it's, it, it's not an idiom, but it's like just the saying, like, you know, red sky at morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight or whatever, which it has to do with incoming the, storms. Yeah. Yeah. Like incoming storm and weather. Like that's an important thing that you would want to know. And, but what are you using? You're using the color red as an indicator for that, which is like, oh, red is the, the third one after dark yeah. and light. It's like, oh man, even there, the sky's got me, got me beat. It got me beat. Which, yeah, I'm like, that's like incredible. I was thinking about too, like under that, the discussion of that, that TikTok that I saw where somebody had said, oh, did you know that the ancient Greeks couldn't see the color blue? They mentioned a poem where somebody was saying, and I believe it was like at dusk or something like that. It was either early in the morning or at night. And inside of the poem, they said that the sea was the color of wine, which is why they were like, oh, Mm. They couldn't see the color blue because they said that the water was. But if it was daytime or nighttime, like, or if it was dawn or dusk, the sea could have been the color of wine. Right. Like the the red, like sun, you know, sunset, sunrise yeah. color reflecting onto it. Or it could have just been like, it's dark. Yeah. You know, because I think of like grape, like wine's made, wine made from grapes. Like if you look at it, especially in a glass, it's like not clear or something. It like just looks dark. Like you look down into the ocean. It's like, oh, wow, this just looks very dark. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like, okay, that's not proof that they couldn't see the color blue. That's just like proof that they knew how to like describe the nuances and changes of things with words that, you know, were evocative. Yeah. So, yeah. That whole like not seeing the color blue thing because there's like no word for it always reminds me too of like Japanese because it always like threw me off. Uh, like especially in like people's like names like last names and stuff like they use ao which is like the color for blue but it'll be like aoyama which means like blue mountain or aoki like like there's all these things like blue something and these blue somethings are always things that if i were to look at them i wouldn't call them blue something i would call them green something because it was like that yeah. that word which now we're like translated to blue but it was like it it actually meant green and then they came up with another word for green you know, later on, it, yeah. it was just because they didn't have that differentiation. That's interesting because Berlin and K came up for a term, or they came up with a term for when a country still had the the language still had the blue green together, and they just called it grew because, <laughs> like, there are a lot of languages uh-huh. that, yeah, it's yeah, like this is it's the same, yeah, because they're like, oh, we don't have a word for green and a word for blue, we have a word for green, and then. They would show them a panel of colors and ask them to point to what they think is the truest green. And then what falls outside of that green range for like that person. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it if the word green still encompassed all of what we would think of as blue, then they would say that that was their that they were still in the grew mm-hmm. instead of like the differentiation between like the two, which is yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating, but it's hard for me to hear the word grew without thinking of like despicable me and just yeah, like laughing. But minions are, that that's are yellow. <laughs> minions are yellow with blue overalls. Um, also, this is like a crazy, a crazy thing that just came back to mind, but I heard this fact fairly recently on like one of the other two podcasts that I listened to in my life about how like, even like people's visual perception of like colors and just, yeah, visual perception of colors, the variance in the type, in the colors that we see as like being the same is like bigger than you would expect. Like the variance for person to person. Yeah. But one of the senses that is the least variable from person to person is the sense of smell. And I don't know, don't ask me. I'm not like a neuroscientist. I don't mm-hmm. know how they did this. If you are a neuroscientist, um, 
feel free to tell me, even though I already heard on this podcast, I just don't remember. But like the sense of smell is much more consistent from person to person. Like we smell things the same way other people smell things. Like we're very confident. It's like the, the variance between how some, I smell something, how you smell something is vast. Again, like our dislike or like for certain smells doesn't have anything to do with like how they subjectively or whatever objectively smell to us as other, you know, like cultural, whatever things yeah. about it. But it's just like, that's such an interesting fact to me that it's like, that's not one that I expect either that our sense of smell is so like, it's not as variable as our sense of sight. I think of the sense of sight thing too, because like my son is colorblind. Yeah. And so that's something that comes up a lot with us. And he's like, not super colorblind. And like, for so for a lot of time, and like some of his teachers wouldn't believe us when we say that he's colorblind because most of the time he can say, and like even with colors that he does get mixed up, like in the right situations, he can tell them apart. Yeah. Like in whatever way, but it's like in some situations for whatever reason, it's like harder. Like he'll sometimes color, uh, like when he's coloring, he'll color people's faces green because it looks just like peach, like a, like a peachy, like fleshy kind of color to him. Yeah. Like of like a Caucasian skin tone. <laughs> um, but it's like, he comes out, it's like, they look like zombies, you know? And he's like, oh, it, just, it looks normal to me, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, wow. Like when things like that come up, it's just like so crazy to, to me to be like, oh, wow. Like you really do see things so differently than I do. Yeah. In that one way. And it's like mind boggling. So it is interesting that when we see colors in stories, we often encounter black, white, and red. But I do want to note that this also might be more common in European tales, which have been Mm. studied more (laughs) for things like color and how, how those elements like play out in the story. There is the fallacy of looking at Europe and trying to develop universal rules for things that really end up only being true for parts of Europe. (laughs) I mean, that's even what like the tail type index has run into as well, is that the majority of the stories that they first gathered to make the index were from Europe. And so a lot of the tail types and the motifs don't carry into other stories or they carry into other stories in different unexpected ways. And those have to be accounted for too. So Mm -hmm. just saying that, but inside of these tales, Jacob Grimm, one of the brothers of Grimm said that these three colors are quote, the three colors of poetry. And again, in many tales, these three colors do pop up in the Grimm collection, For our Patreon a while ago, I think it was last year, we did an episode of Snow White and Rose Red, which while it has a character named Snow White, it is not related to the Snow White tales. Um, She's a completely different person living like a completely different life. Um, It's a tale of two sisters, Snow White and Rose Red, who have an encounter with a black bear and a very rude dwarf (laughs) and so we ended up kind of lightly talking about you know the colors um inside of that episode if people are interested maria tatar says in the colors she uh in this case she's talking about snow white's mother in the colors she invokes we are treated to an instant drama of the senses seeing the hues described by some philosophers as primal with fire red air and water white, despite their transparency, and earth black. These are the same color-coded elements alchemists counted on as they puzzled over how to transmute base matter into precious silver and gold. 
an operation that can be seen as foundational for fairy tale magic as well, with its enshrining of gold and silver, all that sparkles and shines, with happily ever after endings that mark the end of conflict and struggles that are often color coded in red, white, and black. So, we are going to be revisiting our old friend Jean Baptiste Bessile in this episode. <laughs> Oh, Jean-Baptiste. If my memory serves me right, we have told only two tales from Jean-Baptiste Bessile's Pentamarone, or The Tale of Tales. Our very first story episode that we have about Cinderella, we told the tale of Cinderella Cat, which is a favorite since it includes Cinderella murking one of her her first stepmother uh all on her own (laughs) wild absolutely wild we also retold sun moon and talia which is a sleeping beauty variant (laughs) dormant heroine Mm. and it's usually the one that people say did you know that the original version is from italy and sleeping beauty gets sexually assaulted yes yes we've heard it Um, but if people haven't listened to those episodes, definitely go back uh, and listen to those episodes because we do go over, obviously, you know, like original tales and just because something is the most graphic doesn't mean it's the best version. Anyway, all of that, such a mess. (laughs) So even though in almost four years, we've only retold two of his tales, we love talking about Jean-Baptiste Bessile a lot. So for a refresher... Jean-Baptiste Bessile was a Italian poet, courtier, and fairy tale collector. He actually, he had a lot of like different careers. He was alive in around um, 1566. What's interesting is we have that year because that was like the date of his baptism that was like recorded. And you, typically kids were uh, baptized in the first like few weeks of their life. And so they have like an actual date for when that happened, which any, sorry, that's a side note and it's fascinating. <laughs> Love it. And he lived until 1632. So he predates Charles Peral and the Grimm's brothers, which is why usually his tales get quoted as being like originals. He also, when he would retell the tales like in his collection, he added a lot of his own kind of commentary on things. And so there's, yeah, he did. it's a little bit his, his own creation, but also actual tales that were circulating around. One of the interesting things that I do like about his is like the very kind of literary bent that he puts yes. on things. <laughs> like with the... We'll get to it when I retell my story, but lots of really beautiful metaphors and like poetic language. And he definitely is putting his his own personal stamp on there. Yeah. And a lot of callbacks to like Greco-Roman mythologies and, you know, like what's considered today like classic European tales, like in literature, mythologies and stuff, Mm -hmm. which is super fascinating. So he was kind of he was known for making these clever references to things. So his most famous uh, group of tales, he had titled it, obviously, like in Italian, The Tale of Tales. But when it was translated, it got translated. um, The title was changed to 
the Pantamarone. When it was translated into, I believe, first French, and when it was translated into French, the title was The Pantamarone, Entertainment for Little Ones. <laughs> Which, if, oh my if you gosh. read it, these tales are not for little ones. But it was how they were trying to market the tales in like for people so that people would buy it like as morality tales for their children, just like Charles Peral had written a book because th- when this got translated, it was around the same time as Charles Peral. And <laughs> so, yeah, they were trying to market the book for children, but it is not. So there is a Snow White variant inside the Pantamarone. And it is called The Young Slave or The Slave. Interestingly, it does not have the elements of white, black, and red in it. (laughs) It's a really interesting variant. But honestly, I think that like every variant that I've run into has something interesting about it. And we just don't have the time to retell every single variant on the podcast. (laughs) But I'll just say really quickly, some of the things that are interesting about it are this girl's miraculous birth. So her mother gets pregnant from who, and her mother was also like kind of a young, a younger woman in this tale. And Mm -hmm. she was like playing a game with these friends where they were trying to leap over a rose bush without disturbing it. And one of the petals fell off of the rose bush. So before anybody could see that it fell off, she had quickly grabbed it and shoved it in her mouth so that they couldn't see that she had actually lost the game because she wanted to like win. So she like put this Uh. like rose petal into her mouth and swallowed it. And then later, you know, was punished for this lie by becoming pregnant. And so she ends up, you know, having a miraculous birth of this little girl, but to avoid getting in trouble for being pregnant while not married, she has the help of fairies, which fairies are always coded as like wise women mm-hmm. who it's like, are they witches? Are they not hard to tell? But anyway, so the mother has fairies help her give birth to this little girl. And one of the fairies gets upset about something. And so instead of blessing, the girl curses her that she'll die on her seventh birthday, which again, that sounds oh, like man. a very, familiar motif like in a story yeah but not from snow white Mm -hmm. yeah different different dormant heroine (laughs) so her mom puts her into a series of glass coffins i believe that it's seven glass coffins and then the mother herself ends up dying but she's entrusted this like this room that has all these coffins to her brother the girl's uncle And so he has a key to this room that has these coffins that's holding this like dead seven-year-old in it. And his wife later on, like years later, is like jealous that there's this secret room that she can't get into, but she ends up getting the key. And it's discovered that this girl has been growing every year and grew into a like a full-grown woman. So when the jealous wife looks at her, You know, she sees this gorgeous woman. And what's funny is like the coffins have also grown (laughs) as the girl inside has like grown. Uh So the wife looks in and she sees this like what looks like a like a older teenager, young woman, very, very beautiful. And so she's jealous. She ends up disturbing the body, which like dislodges whatever it was that was making her 
be asleep. So, you know, she ends up becoming restored to life. And the tale goes on from there with like, you know, a varying amounts of twists and turns and stuff. So that's kind of the stuff around that tale that's interesting in relation to it being a Snow White variant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, obviously a lot of familiar motifs and magical objects and such. This episode is about the colors white, black, and red, and how they found their way into the Brothers Grimm tale of Snow White, and then the tale probably from Disney that people are the most familiar with today. So, as I explained earlier, we're going to be telling a frame tale because the tri-colors show up in two different tales in The Tale of Tales by Basile. They are the tale that Jeff is going to be retelling, which is the raven or the crow, depending on the translation. And then the other tale is called the three citrons or the love for three oranges. So the second tale is told at the end of the tale of tales, and it is purposefully told to bring to light the evil doing of a woman in the frame story. It's like... In Hamlet, like the tale's the thing in which will prick the conscience of the king, you know, like it's very much one of those situations. (laughs) If people are, you know, up to date on all their Hamlet references. (laughs) I also thought of like the TikTok that was like, wait, is this king play about us? (laughs) It's very much that. Um, And so we could tell the tale without the frame story. But that would mean missing out on the opportunity for us to have a good reason to retell the frame story of the Tale of Tales. And we're an educational fairy tale podcast. I don't know if people realize that's uh, that's what we do. <laughs> so, like, what would be the point of skipping the frame story of one of the most influential books of tales for European folklore? Yeah, it just didn't make sense to not tell the tale. And so you know me, I always err on the side of extra tales. That's why this episode the two part. Yep, because I I realized what I was doing. <laughs> it's like how we joke that I was like, "Oh, we're going to do a Beauty and the Beast episode." And then it turned into a series because I just kept like finding more and more. Adding. And now we purposefully are like, "Okay, we're going to do a series because Katrina has a problem." Which is I mean, why Look, we have a podcast. Yeah, this is the depth that we want to go into these things. Not episodes series worth yes you just wait until it's just years a whole year nothing but one story one tale every single variant that would actually be interesting that would i feel like people would get so bored that i don't know maybe they wouldn't i mean i think it's funny that you and i both are like oh yeah like snow white as a tale like doesn't super interest me or even like cinderella as a story i was like "Eh, i'm not really interested in this But then when I did, just because I'm like, I've heard it before. But then when you get into all of the variants, you're suddenly like, oh, wait, there's a lot here. And some of these stories are really, really interesting and like have a lot of good stuff. So without further ado, I'm going to be starting the beginning of the frame story. And I quickly want to start off by saying that the story starts off um, racist and it stays racist (laughs) throughout because. So you've been. So you've been warned. and. Our part two episode, we're going to be talking about it and discussing it even more um, because it is very intricately tied to the colors black and white and red. 
you will see it throughout the tale. So the racism is why we're telling the tale, but also it's a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not great. I know what you mean. Yeah, because it's like it. We're telling it because we because it's important, and it's important because of how horrible yeah. it was. <laughs> so you kind of can't get around yeah. that because the the story itself starts off. There's a paragraph before the the kind of the action of the tale starts by comparing a black woman to a monkey. Oh god! So like the racism it. It starts off like immediately because they're setting up the tale and they say that the woman who is set up to be the bad guy in this story, she is like a monkey trying to put on boots that aren't made for her and then get her foot stuck, which Mm. just right off the bat, bad. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's like the the racism isn't imagined by us or it was it's purposeful. But there was once a king, the king of Harry Valley, which I know sounds like a (laughs) euphemism. (laughs) It's interesting because it's like H-A-I-R-Y. So like literally Harry um, Valley. And there's not like an explanation as like what it is. uh, But knowing Jean-Baptiste Basile and how he did stick in inappropriate puns and jokes in when like he could mm-hmm. it could mean exactly what we think that it sounds like so <laughs> let's all have a good giggle just for the heck of it so there once was a king of Harry valley who had a daughter named zoza so zoza's biggest problem or her her only problem was that she never laughed She was melancholy by nature, and her dad wanted nothing more than to find a way to make her laugh, which this is fun. It's funny because it's also a really common story motif. But in this story, he has a lot of different people coming and trying different things, like different like circus acts and mimes and like just a whole carnival-esque parade of characters coming to try to make her laugh, and none of them could make her laugh, including... Like what we would describe today as like menstrual shows, which again, it's like, mm. oh, not great. But anyway, all of these different characters, you know, tried to come and make her laugh. Nothing would make her laugh. It wasn't happening. So the father devised a plan to have a great fountain that poured oil erected right next to the palace gate. And it's interesting because uh, this is, I'm like, it's actually like a, a motif that has existed before it's either oil that the fountain has coming out of it or it's wine <laughs> because I mean, kind of for similar reasons. Oh, if everybody in town is coming to get a glass of wine and drink it and you're going to have antics happening. Mm-hmm. And so the point yeah. of erecting this like fountain that had oil coming out of it was basically to make the street slippery <laughs> <laughs> and uh just so that like what yeah it was gonna be like a whole you know slapstick comedy routine of people outside walking past and either having to jump and skip to avoid getting splashed by oil or to avoid tripping or they would be tripping and falling and grabbing each other so it'd just be you know hilarity would ensue was the father's plan so this one old woman decided that she was going to go and get herself 
a jar full of this oil, you know, so that she could use it for like cooking free oil. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm with yeah. her. I get it. But also I wouldn't do it because gross. But yeah, like, yeah, like the sanitation of it all. Yeah. They're like, we're going to be heating it up ridiculously hot anyway. Any germs are going to get, you know, burned up. It's, it'll be fine. Yeah. And so it's free. So it's worth having, you know, if you're poor. Uh, but yeah, it's funny because, you know, you had mentioned uh, Basile's like use of language and it's just like. Really nice turns of phrase are just really funny ways of like describing things because it says one day while Zoza was sitting at the window as sourly as a pickle, an old woman chanced to pass by <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this woman as sour as a pickle was passing by. And this lady was pretty, pretty grumpy, but she had brought a sponge where she was like soaking up oil in the sponge and then squeezing it over a jar so that the oil like poured into this jar. So while she was trying to do this, a young court page saw this woman and thought it would be a super funny joke to throw rocks at this woman. Teenagers are the worst. (laughs) Teenagers are absolutely the worst. That's terrible. Yeah, He's like, oh, do you know what would be funny? If I uh, started throwing rocks at this old woman. So anyway, he picked up a stone. He just picked up one stone and he chucked it and he chucked it with such precision that it hit the jar that she was holding and shattered it. So all the oil that she'd been collecting just spilled everywhere. (laughs) Now she had nothing. So this old woman, she had some words to say to him. It was interesting because it said this old woman who had no hairs on her tongue and let no one ride on her back. So the no hairs on her tongue meant that she... Her tongue was frictionless <laughs> that, you know, that she could speak really fast right. is what they meant. And that, you know, she didn't let anyone ride on her back. Like this woman suffered no fools is is how I would say it. She's she's got something to say. She's going to say it and say it. She did. I read some of these uh, to my daughter and my daughter, who loves <laughs> some good potty talk, thought that this was a, an incredible exchange of words. So this woman shouted at the page, ah, you worthless thing, you dope, bed pisser, leaping goat, diaper ass, hangman's noose, bastard mule. Just look, even fleas can cough now, which I don't know what that means, but- what a sick but burn, what a sick nonetheless. Burn. Go on. May paralysis seize you. May your mother get bad news. May you not live to see the first of May, which was a really big holiday at the time. Go on. May you be thrust by a cotillion lance or torn apart by rope so that no blood will be wasted. May you suffer a thousand ills and then some with winds in your sails. May your seed be lost scoundrel, beggar, son of a taxed woman, which a taxed woman, just so that people know, is a sex worker. Because of course it yeah. is. Yeah, uh, well, a taxed woman, um, it's uh, they paid a specific tax because sex work is real work and you have to pay taxes. Um, so yes, scoundrel, beggar, son of a taxed woman, rogue. <laughs> no, she didn't call him a rogue. <laughs> oh, how mean. <laughs> I've, one of the ones that my my daughter in that whole exchange thought was the funniest was bed pisser. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, ha, he wets the bed. And I was like, yes, super funny. So, of course, it says after hearing this juicy outburst, <laughs> which it was. Oh, 
Absolutely. The lad, who had little hair on his chin and even less discretion. I love that callback to the hair because it was like she didn't have hair on her <laughs> yeah. tongue, meaning like which was a phrase that meant that she was quick with her tongue. Then he's saying he had little hair on his chin. It's like he's a young a young lad. Yeah, cuz he's a young lad, but I love that and even less discretion. Repaid uh. her in the same coin. He said, "Why don't you shut that sewer hole?" <laughs> you boogeyman's grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Blood-sucking witch, baby drowner, fart gatherer. <laughs> My daughter's favorite of that one, just that you and I know, is fart gatherer. Oh, that was my favorite. She too. was like, can I start calling people fart collectors? <laughs> and I was like, only at home. Because, like, listen, I don't want her to go to school and be like, Sling in some of these baby drowner, like yipes, blood sucking witch. So interesting to note about Boogeyman's grandmother. Um, so I'm reading this book. This is out of the Penguin Classics translation mm. of this, and they have copious notes at the bottom, which I deeply appreciate. So when it says Boogeyman's grandmother, they show the word that they got. Oh, right, like from. Like Italian. Yeah, because they're like, obviously, like, Boogeyman doesn't have like a direct translation, but the word Parasaco something, Sakeo, <laughs> I'm just being uh, rude, but <laughs> is the name of a devil or other evil spirit which nurses use to frighten children with, saying that he would open his sack, push them inside, and carry them off. And so mm. the closest equivalent in English to that is Boogeyman. Right. Because. But it's like, because we don't have the thing that they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we don't have the same monster. So yeah, Boogeyman's grandmother, which I, I'm like, hilarious. I think of the devil's grandmother in a, another tale by the Grimms. Oh, man. Such a good one, too. That is. We should go back and listen to it. It'll be like, well, like oh, whose podcast is like this? It's so interesting. I've never heard this story, story before. <laughs> So when the old woman uh, heard these words leaving this man's mouth, uh, she didn't feel too kindly about it, which is obvious. Fair enough. And so it says, becoming so angry that losing her compass bearings and charging from the stable of patience, which I absolutely love that turn of phrase, charging from the stable of patience, I also... <laughs> Sometimes uh, charge from the stable of patience. She raised her stage curtain and revealed a woodsy scene. And at this spectacle, Zoza started laughing so hard that she nearly <laughs> lost her senses. So in case... Finally found something that made her laugh. <laughs> so in case people are unaware, uh, when it says that she raised her stage curtain and revealed a woodsy scene, it means that this old lady lifted up her skirt and showed this boy her <laughs> her private lady business. Oh my gosh. And this is actually a callback to a tale in um, Greco-Roman mythology that is kind of a, a lesser known tale that is about Balbo. And so Balbo is a lesser known character in the story of Persephone and Hades. Mm. So when Persephone was 
kidnapped and taken into the underworld, Persephone's mother, Demeter, was obviously in mourning because of the loss of her daughter. And she, even after things had been like sorted out and settled, Demeter was still upset because she was, she had been basically tricked out of having her daughter all the time and she only had her half of the time. And so it was bad for Demeter to be upset and not laughing. We can see how it's related to this tale. Um, So Demeter was upset, not laughing. You know, the plants couldn't grow. There was not going to be any harvest. And Baubo, the goddess of mirth, and also as body and uh, sexual liberation. (laughs) What a great combo of things to be known for. Yeah. Right? Which, what an icon. And so she was trying to do different things and say different things. She was singing obscene songs to Demeter, trying to get like Demeter to laugh, just like just trying all these different things, basically, to make this lady happy again after the loss of her daughter. And she wasn't laughing. She wasn't laughing. And then she drew aside her robes and showed a sight of shame <laughs> we could insert a woodsy scene, the cave of wonders. Uh, <laughs> There's so many euphemisms. Fill in your euphemism of choice and pleasure here. You know, but she was like, ha ha, my vagina or vulva. Yeah. And for whatever reason, just like this absolute ludicrous display made Demeter start smiling and laughing again. So. There used to be a lot. Uh, so figurines known as Baobos are like have been found in numerous locations and several of them. They look different ways. There's a plump woman with her legs held apart, like just gesturing at her like exposed vulva. <laughs> um, there's also naked splay legged figures holding a harp on the back of a boar. So they're just like, you know, riding on the back of like a boar, playing a harp with their legs spread like wide open. Uh-huh. Interesting ones are the ones that are naked, headless torsos, and the face is in the body and the vulva is the chin of the face. Those ones I find unnerving just because I'm like, I'm like, mm. that woman looks like a full monster. It's unnerving just to hear yeah. about it. And then some of them are just like naked squatting like women with their hands like on their genitalia. So, yes. <laughs> but this woman, she like only appears in like this tale that like has existed. I hope that there have been other stories about her through time because she's a delight. Sounds like episode material to me. Yep. So anyway, that story, this is a reference to that story. Or else I tell you that or else it kind of like doesn't make sense. It seems like a random like thing to Mm -hmm. be happening. That that's what made this girl who never laughs laugh. But it's it's like, oh, it harkens back to, you know, these mythology. Because she was such a fan of Greek and Roman mythology. (laughs) That that reference, the referential humor, not the body humor, not the, you know, crass insults. It was the the Greco Roman mm-hmm. callback mythological that, callback that she was like, that's comedy. <laughs> Classic. So yes, Zoza started laughing so hard that she lost it says she nearly lost her senses. Obviously, though, this old woman who has had her jar broken and then been like made fun of by this boy, which, ma'am, you also had some choice <laughs> words for him. So I mean Yeah. 
Can't stand the heat. Get out the kitchen, lady. She got so upset with Zoza that she said, Be gone and may you never pluck a blossom of a husband unless you take the Prince of Roundfield. So Zoza immediately was like, oh no, because the Prince of Roundfield was a prince who lived in like a faraway neighboring kingdom who it was said had been punished by an enchantment or curse of, you know, his own situation. To mm-hmm. fall into an enchanted sleep. And he was lying outside of the kingdom inside of a crystal coffin. Sounds familiar. Next to a fountain. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh. It's a man who's dorm- is a dormant hero. <laughs> He's not a hero in this story. <laughs> he- a dormant side character. Dormant male side character. Perfect. Dormant male love interest. Yes, love interest. And he could only be awakened. By true love's kiss. Unfortunately, no. It's crying enough tears in three days to fill this like pitcher that was hanging next to his coffin. And his name, in case people it's... were definitely wondering, was Tadio. Tadio. That's one thing I do appreciate about Jean-Baptiste Bessile is that he always names the characters... Or maybe it's just Italian folklore. I don't know. Maybe they've had names in yeah. you know the other retellings or whatever. And they don't wait until like halfway through the story to be like, oh, yeah, by the way, the character's name was this. It's like character's introduced. He tells you their name. Yeah. It's easy to keep straight it's in like, your boom, mind. like, boom, love Beautiful. it. Well done. That's how you do it. Perfect. Never change. Jean-Baptiste <laughs> Basile, never change. So, obviously, Zoza, now capable of laughter... That problem that she has is solved. But now she has this new problem to solve, which is this curse that she'll never get married unless it is to this guy who's in an enchanted sleep. So she's like, I mean, uh hate it when that happens. It's the worst. All the other girlies can relate. Indeed. Come out of a years long depression. Finally start seeing the joy and laughter in life. And what do you know? The man you want to marry. Uh, who knows if she actually wants to marry? Cursed is the only one that she can. Falls into enchanted slumber. What are you going to do? You know, that's just the way life goes sometimes. Yeah. Ain't that just the way? So almost immediately, and here's something that I love about Zoza, is that this is a woman of action. She gets mm. cursed by this woman and is immediately like, oh my gosh, I need to do something about it. I need to figure this out. What do I need to do? I will sort this out. This is a puzzle that needs to be solved. She immediately goes to her father's treasury, grabs like a bunch of gold coins so that she has some money for the road. And then she slips out of the palace and kept on walking until she came to the castle of a fairy. And again, fairies are wise women. Godmothers are women that are attached to usually like they're attached to families through like motherly lineage. They're people who matter a lot to like family and they might have been people who are present at births and they get coded as fairies. We've yeah. So fairies, it's like is interchangeable with wise woman, with witch, with hag and a crag. I wish that these were hags and crags because I love hags and crags. Me too. But alas, they're just fairies. So she gets to the home of this fairy and immediately, you know, this woman comes out and is like, 
hey, girl, hey, what's going on? What is the problem? <laughs> and Zoza, you know, tells her everything that has transpired. And this fairy was like, oh, what a like a horrible thing for you at such a tender age to have such a blinding love. I'm going to write a letter to my sister, letting her know that you're on the way. We will get you over to this guy. We're going to do everything that we can to help you out here. Take this walnut. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so she hands her this walnut. And obviously now is the time in the tale when we're going to start collecting magical items. (laughs) Love that part of the tale. Yes, of course. So she says, take this, my dear girl, and hold it, dear but open it only in a moment of great need. So of course, Zoza takes the letter that she's going to give to this fairy's sister and she takes the walnut and she heads off. So gets to this other sister, sister reads the letter and is like, oh my goodness, Zoza, little girly, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. This is horrible. I'm going to write a letter to my other sister. You're headed in the right direction. Here's the way that you should go. Take this horse with you. And also... Here is a chestnut and only open it under the knife of need, which I absolutely love that. Like the knife of need, not only because it's an alliteration, but also I just like love that idea of like, like let your need be the device at which, you know, you'll know you open this. I'm like, oh, that language is just beautiful. But anyway, so she also gives her um, a horse And sends her to the next sister. She gets to the next sister. That next sister is like, oh, perfect. Yes, I know exactly where this guy lives, where this kingdom of Roundfield is. Here are the directions. Here is, like, here's another horse, and here is a hazelnut. Make sure that you only open this when you absolutely need it. So now she's got a walnut, a chestnut, and a hazelnut. She's on a horse, says... Zoza threw up her legs and traveled through so many countries and crossed so many woods and rivers that after seven years, she reached Roundfield with barely a tail left on her, Uh, which I love because by tail, they mean like butt. And I love like that as like a figure of speech of basically like she rode her butt off. Love it. Oh, absolutely. But man, seven years. But We've definitely encountered stories like East of the Sun, West of the Moon, where heroines travel and travel and travel and travel until they are able to find this, like, missing dude, this, like, enchanted, like, husband character that they want to marry. Right. So, yeah, it's like, we've definitely seen this before. But, yeah, seven years. I'm like, woof. So she gets to the city limits and she sees a marble tomb at the foot of a fountain that was crying crystal tears. I'm like, wow, that fountain is much better than an oil fountain. (laughs) No shade to her dad, but mm, crystals. mm. So she immediately grabbed the pitcher that was hanging right there and put it between her legs and began to think about some really sad stories. And Jean Baptiste Basile, he mentions like the names of like some of these tales, but they're not tales that are never heard of it, buddy. Yeah, like as as familiar to people as he probably I mean, as his audience back when he was writing this would have been as familiar with them. But essentially, she just started thinking of just like all of the saddest stories <laughs> that she could think of to like keep her crying to keep like the tears coming. 
And it took her less than two days to fill it to within two fingers of the rim. Oh, yep, Just two more fingers and it would have been full. But she was absolutely exhausted from spending two straight days crying, which, yeah, relatable. It's exhausting. This it is. Crying is exhausting. It really takes it out of you. And so it says, without meaning to, she was hoodwinked by sleep and forced to rest for a couple of hours under the tent of her eyelids, which again, I love that. Same. I love it when we get to read something that's like, the, like any kind of like classics. Beautiful yeah. language. Yeah. So what Zosa didn't know was that pretty soon after she had got to the fountain and grabbed the pitcher, there was another woman who was coming walking up and they described this woman as a cricket legged slave girl. Jeez. Yeah. And that term cricket leg that was a that's a slur it sounds it's, like a slur. yeah it sounds like a slur it was a slur back then and it's i mean it's not a slur now because obviously i'm explaining it to you which means that obviously it's not one that we are familiar right. with but the note under it says that it was one of the terms used to indicate the physical characteristics other people in italy thought of as like mm, this is what's characteristic mm. for people who were um middle eastern or north african mm. and so yeah it's it is a slur so this slave woman had walked up and seen zoza crying and knew what she was trying to do so like you know trying to get this prince out and so she sat and she waited and when she saw that zoza had gone to sleep she went over and picked up the pitcher and then finished crying those two fingers worth of tears to fill up the pitcher. And as soon as the pitcher was full, out of the marble coffin came the prince of Roundfield, Taddeo. And he saw the woman who was holding the pitcher full of tears and assumed that it was the the person who had filled it all up and was the person who had saved him from his enchanted sleep. Hmm. So in the book, it says he took hold of that mass of black flesh and carried her off to his palace where amid festivities and Royal fireworks, he made her his wife. And I want to say like black flesh, because we are going to be talking about the colors and how the colors are very explicitly uh, related mm -hmm. to race within the tales. And it'll keep popping up. And every time I like, because it's why we're telling the tales, like it's part of like the reason I will be mentioning it, even though I'm not pleased with it. Like we had said at the beginning. No. So pretty soon because of the fireworks and celebrations that were going off, Zoza awoke and she looked over and she found the pitcher on the ground overturned and she saw that the coffin was open and empty. And immediately she knew that like she had missed out on her chance to marry the person that she had been like cursed to marry. Mm -hmm. Again, beautiful turn of phrase. It says she nearly unpacked the parcels of her soul at the custom house of death. Whoa. That's some very interesting, like evocative language. So what was interesting was that it was like, instead of starting to complain or, you know, be like, oh, I was cheated or anything like that. 
It says she just exclaimed with a sigh that, and again, I'm quoting and I do apologize, (sighs) that two black things had brought her to her downfall, sleep and a slave. Mm. And again, so it's like we're bringing back that color word to like describe like what's going on. So after this, she was like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? She was walking around the city trying to figure out like what she wanted to do. And she'd been, you know, there for, I don't know, like how it must have been a while uh, because of kind of like what's going on (laughs) pregnancy wise for (laughs) this, like the former slave woman. Her name isn't revealed until a little bit later. It's Lucia. Um, But yeah, it becomes clear later that Lucia, by the time this action now is happening, is already uh, very pregnant. And so obviously Zoza was kind of like walking around trying to figure out what to do for a while. And it says that one day she sighted Tadio, who, like a bat, was always flying round that black knight of a slave, but became an eagle when he fixed his eyes upon Zoza, which I thought was just like such an interesting like comparing of like these like flying creatures. Mm, a bat and an eagle. Yeah. One that has like worse connotations than the other. And. Oh, I guess. I th- I think bats are really cool. I do too. I'm a big fan of bats. So like when I think of bats, I don't think of it as like, I don't know. I just think, oh, cool. But I guess it's like if I really stop and I'm like, oh, like you're talking about like vampires. You yeah. Know. I mean. Vampires were not a thing yet when Jean-Baptiste Basile right. was like writing. Well, well, in the way that we conceive of them and how they're related to bats. But yes. If you go deep into the vampire lore of Anne Rice's vampires, um, just kidding. I can't remember where it is where they talk about like Judas Iscariot being like the first like vampire being cursed. That's like one thing I've heard of stuff. I don't think it's related to any like folklore yeah, type thing. Yeah, because when we had done a vampire like episode, we had talked about how Bats being connected with uh, vampires didn't come for a very, very long time. They would have just become like aware of like new world bats when Jean-Baptiste Basile was writing. So Tadio, when he saw Zoza for the first time, for whatever reason, he felt this like, I mean, they say like, oh, because she was so beautiful, but I don't know, maybe it was something else too. Like he felt some kind of like connection or draw to him. You know, like a nearly full pitcher's worth of tears type of connection to her. Yeah. It's like someone cried this much because they wanted to marry me. I mean, that's moving. It is moving. So Zoza ended up then getting herself a a little house right across from the palace where Tadio lived so that she could be seen through like windows in his house. But Tadio was spending so much time looking out of his window at this woman that obviously his wife, Lucia became uh, concerned by how much he was looking. Mm. And every time this woman has dialogue, it is purposefully bad like grammatically wrong. And it's Mm. not to mimic the way that people actually spoke, but a mocking of the way that these like people from North Africa spoke. And so again, I do apologize for the racism and I'm not going to be reading a lot of her stuff that she says verbatim because she basically only has like, like one line of 
stuff that she says. She's never given eloquent speeches. So she said, if you no move from windowsill, me punch belly and little Georgie kill. And this is where you become aware that, you know, she's pregnant and that like every time her husband does something she doesn't like, she like threatens to like kill the baby that she's pregnant with. Obviously, like all of this is terrible. We can all see that. So Taddeo is like, okay, I can't, I can't be looking out the window, you know, fantasizing about this other woman. I, I need to do what my wife tells me to do. So Zoza seeing that, okay, this is what's going on. Like, this is how things are, you know, like Zoza is like, okay, you know what? It's finally happened. I have my knife of need. I need to marry this guy. His wife obviously is what's standing in the way of us like being together. And so now is the time to pull out those like fairy gifts. And so she pulls out the walnut and cuts it open. And out comes a tiny little man (laughs) as big as a doll. And he just starts singing all these like amazing songs. And his voice is beautiful and wonderful. And so Zoza takes this little singing man that popped out of the walnut and puts it next to the windowsill so that now the person who's sitting guarding the window to make sure that Tadio isn't looking out the window at her. Now Lucia Mm -hmm. is sitting at the window looking out to make sure Tadio isn't at the window. (laughs) And so Lucia looks out and sees this little man singing at the window. And immediately she was like, I want that. I want that man. Tadio, you need to get that man for me. And there was a belief at this time that if a woman craved something while she was pregnant, you needed to provide her with that thing or else something bad would happen to the baby inside of her. Right. And so it was, I mean, sometimes it was things like, oh, if the wife is craving strawberries and you don't give her strawberries, then the baby will be born with like red marks on his skin. And we know that Mm. those are like birthmarks that those just like happen. It's unrelated to women's cravings, like while they're pregnant. But also there were things where it was like, oh, if a woman craves to like be by the seaside, if you don't take her to the sea, then there would be like complications in the birth or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so it was kind of like you would try if you had the means to anytime a pregnant woman had a craving, you would try to like meet that need. So she told. Just, yeah. So she told her husband, I have to I have to have this man, <laughs> this little singing man. I want it now. If you don't do something about it, you know, something bad will happen to Georgie. And so the, the prince unable, he thought, you know, to go and be in the presence of Zoza. He sent, you know, a servant to go over to her house and ask for this and see what she would sell it for. So a servant goes over and asks what she would sell it for. And Zoza says, I'm not a merchant. If the queen wants this gift or this, then I will just give it to her. And this message is relayed to Tadio along with, you know, the little man gets given to the wife. Mm. And Tadio is like, wow, not only is this woman very beautiful, she's also very generous. So four days later, Zoza opens the chestnut and out came a hen with 12 golden chicks. And again, she like puts them in the windowsill so that when Lucia looks out the window, she sees the hen and the little chicks glittering gold. And she's like, I want them. I'm craving them. Get them for me. And so 
Tadio sends a servant again, goes over to the house and is like, what will you sell these for? And she's like, oh no, if the queen wants these, I'm not a merchant, so I'm not here to sell anything. She can have them as a gift. And so again, you know, that message is relayed and the uh, chick's handed over. And <laughs> what's interesting, the line, and of course, you know, this is Jemba Tiste Basile, but it says that, you know, when those little hens were handed over to Lucia, she just snatched them really quick. Quote, since women are by nature so greedy that all the gold bars in India are not enough to satisfy them. I'm like, okay, get it together. <laughs> As if wars have not been fought and, you know, people haven't been like murdered yeah. in the quest for like men to get rich. Settle down. Get a grip, Jim Batiste Basile. Get a grip. So four days again pass and Zoza pulls out the hazelnut and she cuts it open and out comes a doll that spun gold, an object amazing beyond all imagination. So of course she goes and she sets it in the windowsill. Pretty soon Lucia looks out the window and sees it and wants it immediately and tells Tadio. So Tadio, not wanting to once again send his servant down to talk to this woman, he's like, well, what would be polite is if I went down to talk to this woman. So um, he says, if you want to eat fish, you have to get your tail wet. And again, tail meaning butt, which mm. I love. If you want to eat fish, you got to get your butt wet. And, you know, fish have tails too, which is, uh-huh. it makes it all the more interesting. So he shows up at... Zoza's place and asks for this doll. And she's like, of course I will give you this doll. But before she gives him this doll, she begged the little piece of clay to instill in the slave's heart, the desire to hear tales. Mm. So Tadio now has the doll. And she of course was like, you can take this. You don't owe me anything. And he's just like, wow, I'm amazed by your generosity. This is like so wonderful and kind of you. Like, thank you. And so he goes back to Lucia, gives her the doll. And immediately she has this fire put in her chest, this burning desire to hear tales be told. And of course, since she's craving them so much, she needs to have that craving immediately or else satisfied immediately or else something bad will happen to Georgie. So she tells her husband, you need to have people come here and tell me tales, or else, you know, something bad is going to happen to Georgie. And so he immediately goes out and makes a proclamation that all of the women of the land were to come to his palace on such and such a day. And on that day, he was going to pick out the best storytellers among them. So these women from all over the place come, and there were like, so many women. He's like, okay, I'm just going to need 10 women. And they each have a quality and it's supposed to be kind of like a joke of about like, oh, old lady spinsters. And they're like these gross old women, women, when they get old are gross, but they have some uses I'm like, thank you. Thank you for that. But I'm going <laughs> to tell you what these women were called. There was lame Ziza. Twisted Sika, Goitered Menenka, Big Nosed mm. Tolia, Hunchback Popa, Drooling Antonella, 
snout-faced Ciulia, cross-eyed Paola, mangy Simonelta, and shitty Akatova. <laughs> I'm sorry, I laughed during that last one. And shitty Akatova. Once he had written down their names <laughs> and sent the other woman away. Oh my goodness. I, I'm imagining. Written down their names just as they were read to us. <laughs> like that's written down um, on the paper. That'd be like, here, here is how I would like to be described. And so he explained to them, you know, my wife for the next five days needs to hear tales. How we're going to do this is I will feed you every day a fabulous meal. And when the meal is over, each one of you will retell a tale to my wife. So it's 10 women, five days, a tale apiece, 50 tales. And that's why it's called the Penta Marone is Penta five days of these stories being mm. told. And that is the setup for the frame story. We'll see how all that turns out later. But these women start telling tales. And, you know, obviously some of the tales that are retold are on the first day, day number one, one of the tales that is retold is the Cinderella cat. On day number two, we have the story the little slave girl. And that is the tale. Uh, that is the snow white variant tale mm. because the, the girl that I told you about at the beginning of the episode who was born, you know, put in these coffins and you know, all of that stuff. She later became like a slave. And then she has, you know, this journey that she goes on on day number four, we have the story, the crow which Jeffrey will be retelling. So once there was a king of Shady Thicket whose name was Meluccio. And once again... One second. I just want to say, that sounds pretty suggestive to me. Like Harry Valley. Yeah. Once again, we have like a suggestive (laughs) sounding name. And it also kind of sounds like the name of like the trailer park that the protagonist of an 80s coming of age movie would live in. (laughs) Like it has that like specifically generic kind of a sound to it. Shady thicket. And this king, Miluccio, was obsessed with hunting. He was so obsessed with hunting that he neglected pretty much everything in his life to get out in them woods and hunt hares and things like that. So again, he's the king. He's like the ruler of this kingdom, but he doesn't really do any governing, doesn't really have much of a personal life. He just loves to go out and hunt. So one day... While hunting, he came across a dead crow on top of, quote, a splendid piece of marble, which I'm going to help you out right now and tell you that splendid piece of marble means it's a statue of a woman because that's important for what comes next. And when I first read it, I was really confused, imagining just like a slab of marble being like, oh, we could really turn this into like a really great countertop or, (laughs) you know, tiling our entryway. Um, No, it's a statue. So he sees this splendid piece of marble, this statue of a beautiful woman, and he sees the bright red blood of a dead crow splattered on the brilliant white stone, uh, Mm. red and white. When he saw that, he heaved a great sigh and said, sure would be nice if I could have a wife as white and red as that stone with eyelashes and hair as black as the feathers of this dead crow. And so with that, he begins fantasizing about marrying this super hot white statue covered in blood. And it says that he, quote, he acted out the menashimi with the stone, And he looked like a marble statue 
that was making love with that <laughs> other marble. So I don't know what acting out the Minachimi yes. means, but apparently it means uh, getting the freaky deaky on, apparently, because looks like he was. And it says, making love with that other marble statue. Getting his freaky deaky on. <laughs> so, again, another just beautiful direct quote here. As he drove this dismal whim into his head and fed it with the pap of desire. Mm. I think it's, is it pap of desire or is it pip of desire? Did I miswrite that? The girl, I don't know. Anyway, with the pap of desire, at the snap of a finger, he went from a toothpick nope. to a bean pole, mm. a jujube to an Indian squash, <laughs> a barber's warming pan to a glass blower's furnace, a dwarf to a giant. <laughs> All fantastic new metaphors I'm going to use from now on when I too get an erection because basically dude got super horny for this statue. And he was so deeply obsessed with this statue that he thought about like literally nothing else. Hunting was out of his mind. Now his new obsession was this statue. Which again, like like it's like speaking of Greco-Roman stories. This is the story of like Pygmalion from... Uh-huh. Is that also the Metamorphosis by Ovin? I'm not sure. I just, I, but I did like where he, you know, makes a statue out of marble and then like falls in love with it. Yeah, he's like believes that there are like no perfect women until yeah. he makes like a stone, which is like a perfect woman. But then he's like, yeah. oh, I'm in love with this woman. But we can, yeah. <laughs> and then Venus is like, ain't that sweet and brings it to life. And then he's like, yay. Is it sweet, Venus? No, it's is not. Is it sweet? So anyway, this guy. Really obsessed with the statue. And so the king's brother, whose name is Inariello, when he saw the king, he kind of got super worried. He saw like that his brother was like, you know, ruminating on something, kind of down, kind of depressed. And he's like, hey, what's up, bro? Your pain is lodged in your eyes and your desperation seated atop the pallid signboard of your face. What has happened to you? Wow. <laughs> it's like, man, this Inariello is going for a brother of the year because listen to this. That's later on. Throughout the story, you'll see, like, in Ariello, the, the type of brother we all wish we could have. So he says to his brother, his moping king of a brother, talk, open your heart to your brother. The stink of coal in a closed room infects those within. Powder compressed inside a mountain sends fragments of rock flying through the air. Scabies shut up inside the veins makes the blood rot. Wind held inside the body generates flatulence and bad colics. So open your mouth and tell me what you're feeling. Brother, fart out your feelings before you get the colic. <laughs> and so then with that, Inariello promised that he'd do whatever he could to help his brother with whatever was troubling him. And so the king sighed again and he thanked his brother for his kind words. But he knew that there was nothing that his brother could do to cure what was bothering him. And he said, there is no cure for this illness since it was born of a stone on which he had sown his desires without the hope of any fruit. Yipes. A stone from which you could not hope for even one mushroom of happiness. Mm. A stone of Sisyphus that pushed his plans up a mountain and once it got to the top, sent them rolling down crash to mm. the bottom. All these, I like all these references. Yeah, again, another reference to like Greek and Roman mythology with Sisyphus. And I do love, again, why I read these these two quotes. One, great metaphors in, you know, the flatulence that gets caught inside of your body and leads to bad colics. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the greatest one, but the other ones were great. You know, like these feelings like build up, you got to get them out. That's great advice. Got to talk to a bro about that. Um, but then this one too, he's like, it was like 
he's using the metaphor of a stone, but like the object of his desire is a literal stone, marble. And so it's like, he's got these desires towards the stone, but no hope that anything can bear fruit. It's just like, you know, sown his, sown his desires, like planted the seed of desire, which let's not think back to what he was doing with that stone. And <laughs> I was, unfortunately. And mix those uh, metaphors together. But then, you know, like he's like, I can't even count on anything growing from this. Like not even a mushroom is going to grow on this rock. And this rock then is like this stone of Sisyphus that he pushes up. It's like a useless thing, but I can't stop doing it because, I mean, he wasn't cursed by the gods or whatever, but he was cursed by himself by getting his heart set on this beautiful stone statue. Yeah. Anyway, and the only other hearing this is like, oh man, bro, cheer up. I know just what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out. I'm going to travel all over the world until I find the woman that was the model for this statue so that you can marry her. And so the brother, he sets off in a ship full of merchandise, dressed also as a merchant, and set sail to Venice, which I thought was interesting because there is a Shakespeare play called The Merchant of Venice. And um, maybe there's a little bit of foreshadowing with that if you're familiar mm-hmm. with The Merchant of Venice and a pound of flesh and stuff of that nature. But stay tuned because literally that is only mentioned. It's like he set off for Venice, but then he sailed on to Cairo. So like we hear no- nothing about Venice and... Yeah, just like a weird stopover in Venice. And it's like, that was a detail that seemed unnecessary. Yeah, but it was like, and I looked up too because it's like uh, Jean-Baptiste Basile was like kind of like a contemporary of Shakespeare, like yeah. different countries and stuff too. But it's like they were alive and like writing these things and writing stuff down at the same time. So it's like, it's possible, plausible that Jean-Baptiste Basile might have heard of the play, but it's like, you know, I don't know. It's well, just... but so also the... That tail motif itself of a pound of flesh. So in Shakespeare and the folk tale, an, oh, an- nice. <laughs> an anthology. We've done an episode before on the the taming of the shrew. Yeah, we've done before like an episode about and used this book that was uh, Shakespeare and the folk tale and a pound of flesh as a folk tale was like a a common folktale that was already in existence in the area when Shakespeare used it as a part of his plot for the Merchant of Venice. Mm -hmm. So a pound of flesh is actually ATU type 890, but there were other tales in other places that used some of those that use that exact same like tail type, right. some of which even existed in like Persia. So it wasn't even necessarily a like, like European, European tail type. Interesting. 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 Yeah. I was like, you know, I, it was just interesting too that again, it'll come up, but well, oh man. Yeah. It comes up and is really relevant. So we'll get there, I guess, but just like, but Venice, like dressed as a merchant and set sail for Venice. It was like putting merchant and Venice together. Uh, just like, again, brought that to mind but it's also probably the reason why Shakespeare named his play like Merchant of Venice was probably Venice was well known for being a place where you know merchants and people went because it's like this whole port city anyway we don't need to get into that yeah let's continue on with the story that's all (laughs) an aside to say Inerilo's a great brother and he's going out on a quest to find this woman for his brother so he sets off for Venice doesn't stay in Venice he instead goes on to Cairo and when he gets to Cairo he is walking around and he sees a man carrying a beautiful falcon. So he buys this falcon for his brother because he knows that his brother is an avid hunter, loves hunting, would love to use this falcon for hunting purposes. 
I love that not only is he like a great brother for going to try to find his brother, like this woman that was the model of like this white statue that he found, but he also is like, oh, as I'm going along, I'm also going to pick him up little travel gifts that I'm finding along the way. Because maybe his thinking too is that like, you know what, if I can't find this lady, at least I'll come back with like... Maybe some stuff to get him out of his depression where it's like, oh, here's some more stuff you love hunting. Here, take this to go hunting. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like... What a thoughtful brother. Hedging his bets a little bit. But I mean, again, he knows his brother's, his likes. Yeah. God him a present that he thought and knew his brother would would really like. Um, So he continues walking after buying this falcon and he sees someone else selling a marvelous horse that he also bought as a gift for his brother. Mm. Because who doesn't need a marvelous horse? again, some expensive gifts. The next morning, when the army of stars was charged by the general of light and removed its tents from the stockade of the sky, absconding its posts, which basically just means that it got light out and you couldn't (laughs) see the stars anymore, which is what happens in the morning. The next morning, the brother started wandering the city, looking around just in case he might happen across the women this statue was based on. Interestingly, like the story says, too, that he was wandering, quote, always looking around like a thief afraid of the cops. And after a little while, he came across a tramp. I mean, you can kind of get that like that look is like looking around, like on the lookout to make sure like, oh, man, if I get spotted or whatever, it's like he was just looking out for that. He was the one trying to spot someone not trying not to be spotted by the cops. Yeah. But anyway, after a little while, he comes across a tramp dressed in rags and the tramp sees the brother walking around walking along, looking very confused as he's like looking around, like not sure what, you know, like what he's looking for. Yeah, like what's this guy up to? And so the tramp's like, you know what? I'm going to ask him what's wrong. He's like, what's wrong? What's up with you, man? And Inariello's like, what are you, a cop? Why should I tell you? Which is funny because it's like, you know, he was looking around like a a thief (laughs) on the lookout for cops. And then now he's like, what are you, a cop? Um, Which is like, that's like, he he doesn't say, what are you, a cop? But he does say that basically like, are you a cop? Like, why should I tell you? Which he knew that this tramp was not a cop, obviously. Yeah. Like, in the same way that we would say that, like, what are you, a cop? Unless he's undercover. (laughs) Deep undercover. (laughs) Um, And so the tramp replies, like, hey, wait a minute, young man. Human flesh is not sold by weight. Mm. If Darius had not told his troubles to a stable boy, he would not have become master of Persia. Which is, like, that's where it comes back, where it's, like, human flesh sold by weight, pound of flesh. And then... Even more interestingly to me now that you've explained that thing about how that like pound of flesh thing was also in stories as far away as Persia. And now we're getting this like reference to a story uh, of Persia, which like I can't remember, like Darius basically was like the story was, I don't know what troubles he told, but he was like, you know, he told his troubles to the stable boy and somehow that was like really instrumental in him doing whatever he needed to do to become the king of Persia. Yeah. But anyway, so it's basically the point is like, hey, if like this really powerful person hadn't told this really seemingly unimportant and unpowerful person this thing, then he wouldn't have had the great faith that he did. So like, would it be so strange of you to tell your business to a poor old tramp like me? (laughs) For there's no stick so thin it can't be used to clean your teeth. I've never had that problem. Which I get is like a hilarious metaphor. It's like, I think, you know, in some ways, the thinner the stick, the easier to clean your teeth, like a toothpick. Yeah. But it's like, I have seen this whole thing, like, you know, like chewing sticks, like that they would like, and this is like, you know, prehistoric peoples would like chew, like have chewing sticks that they would like chew on and like rough up thing and like supposedly use that to like scrub their teeth off with too. Hmm. 
So, you know, a bigger a bigger stick is a little better for that. Not a giant stick, obviously, probably. But <laughs> anyway, this is all speculation anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I love hearing about you talking about dental hygiene and like prehistory. <laughs> this is why I'm so fun at parties. <laughs> so hearing the tramp spout all of this nonsense instead of being like, dude, what the heck are you talking about? Sticks cleaning your teeth and the like. And now Yellow's like, whoa, you know what? This dude is talking some sense. And he proceeds to tell him what he's doing in the town, looking for this statue model. The tramp responds with a line that I think I'm going to make my new catchphrase, which is, now you see, my son, how you need to take every person into account. Ready for it? For although I'm trash, <laughs> I'll still be good for fertilizing the garden of your hopes. <laughs> so it's like, although I'm trash, like, I can still be of use to you. I can still, I mean, uh, fertilizing the garden of your hopes, like that is a really good that metaphor. That is beautiful. Again, it's one of the things we love good old Jean, Jean-Baptiste Basile for. I might be trash. I might be trash. But I'm still, but I'm, I'm good trash. I'm useful trash. So the tramp comes up with this plan. He's like, listen, I'm going to use the excuse that I'm begging for alms, which is something as a tramp I'm known to do. To go knock on the door of a beautiful young woman who is the daughter of a necromancer. And Mm. if you open your eyes and you look at her, I think you're going to find that she is the woman that you're looking for. The woman that your brother desires. And so saying this, the tramp heads off and he goes and knocks on the door of a house not far from there. Where a girl named Liviella comes and throws a piece of bread to him. It seems as though he's done this before. And as soon as Iñariello saw her, he was like, that is her. Way to go, tramp. And he also gives the tramp a nice offering and sends him on his merry way. And so, with that, Inadiello goes back to the tavern where he was staying and disguises himself as a uh, door-to-door salesman of sorts with like a, all, all sorts of little knickknacks and things. A vendor of notions, it says. Mm. And he takes two little cases filled with all these various wares over to Liviella's house and... Offer to sell them. And she comes over to take a look at all these things. Beautiful hairnets, veils, ribbons, you know, buckles, pins, pots of rouge, Ooh. bonnets, et cetera, et cetera. And she's looking at all that stuff and she's like, hey, do you have like anything else that you can show me? This stuff is all great, but like I want to see some even more beautiful stuff. And he's like, look, if you want more beautiful stuff, I know just the thing. Look, this stuff that I carry around, this is just kind of my low price stuff. But if you want to come to my ship, I'll show you all the things that are just like absolutely out of this world. I have treasures that are worthy of like great princes and lords and you're going to love it. And so Liviella did not lack in curiosity, it says. But yeah, I mean, so she was curious as anyone would be in this situation. So she's like, okay, I'll go. But she's like, you know what? Like, well, actually she didn't say she'd go. She was like, I I can't go because my dad's not here. So if my dad were here, I'd be happy to go. So basically she's like, my dad's not home, so I can't come. And so Ian Ariello is not deterred. And he simply replies, well, that's even more of a reason for coming because maybe if he were here, he would forbid you from coming to my ship. Did you think about that? Yeah. Then he was on. He's like, look, I'm going to show you things that are so lavish. They're going to drive you crazy. You're going to love it. Necklaces, earrings, belts, corsets, you know, whatever. All this great stuff. Treat yourself. Fine. Leather goods. (laughs) (laughs) And so he says, in short, I intend to make your eyes pop out of your head. Woo. And so hearing of this, Liviella's like, okay. We're going to go. So she calls over a friend to accompany her, which like smart move. Mm -hmm. Uh, Never follow a merchant to a secondary location 
is the first rule. But if you're going to bring a friend, bring a friend, never get kidnapped alone. <laughs> and so once she's aboard the ship, Inariello starts, you know, enchanting her by showing her all these beautiful things that she'd brought, he'd brought with her. And at the same time, he's like, you know, uh, motioning like silently to his like people like, hey, drop the anchor. Let's set sail. Come on, <laughs> let's go. And so like they start do it. The anchor's pulled. The sails are unfurled. And before Liviella even lifts her eyes from the merchandise, she looks up to see like they are miles from land and it's too late for her to escape. And so when she became aware of this uh, deceit under which that she was kidnapped, she starts freaking out. A normal response. And it says she began to act like Olympia, but the other way around, since if the latter lamented that she had been left on a rock, Liviella lamented that she had left the rocks. Oh, so so clever, Jean-Baptiste de Basile. Yeah, he's like, it's like this other famous story that, again, a Greek-Roman mythological story that I'm actually not super familiar with, but he's like, but, but it's a little Uno reversed. <laughs> yeah. And also the people, think, you know, would have been aware of it more than we were. Yeah. Especially, especially the people he's telling the story yeah, to. which were like rich, literate people. Yeah. Now that, you know, the whole deceitful plan has been revealed that he's kidnapping this lady and taking him, taking her who knows where. He's, he tells her who he is. He's like, listen, you know, like I'm my brother's the king and like he's he's wants to marry you, basically. I don't know if he does goes in the whole like statue thing. That's not important. He's just like, he wants to marry you. So he starts like really <laughs> hyping up his brother. <laughs> so my brother, he found a statue that looked like you and he kept like dry humping it. And so I'm taking you to him, a totally normal person. <laughs> right. So it's probably wise if he had like skimmed over that part. But he's like, <laughs> he's hyping up his brother. So he's like, oh man, Maluccio, he's such a beautiful man, such a beautiful face. He's got valor and virtue and like, he's going to love you so, 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 so much. And with that, Liviella's like, oh, you know what? That doesn't sound so bad. And uh, she's like, it says, beg the wind to take her quickly Ooh. to see the colors that Iniarello was sketched for her. Uh, so she's like, gets really excited. She's like, oh man, if this guy's as, as beautiful and valorous and virtuous and if he's, you know, as great as you say he is, then like, I want to get there. And so they went on sailing cheerfully. I don't know what happened to like the friend that she brought along. I'm like a little scared to ask the question because like, is she on the ship? Did she get left? Listen. On the shore. If they don't tell us what happened, then we get to write our own story. And she got on that boat and she found some super hot guy working on the ship. And she was like, you know what? This ship ain't half bad. And they fell madly and deeply in love. And they ended up buying a new boat and starting their own merchant company. And they lived happily ever after. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, so as they're cheer. <laughs> So as Ianariello was uh, sailing cheerfully on, suddenly he heard the waves whisper under the ship, which this I love too, because it kind of like speaks to the expertise of the captain of the ship. It says like, although they were speaking in a low voice, the waves we're talking about are the ones that are speaking. Mm -hmm. The ship's captain who could understand shouted, everyone on the alert, there's a storm coming. And they like start freaking out. And so at these words... Like a huge gust of wind comes and the sky's covered with clouds. The sea starts filling with these like breaking waves. And uh, again, like I love the personification of these waves. It says the waves were curious to know everyone else's business. Mm. 
Since the waves were curious to know everyone else's business, they came aboard the ship without being invited to the wedding. <laughs> so it's just like all these ships are like, hey, what's going on? We want to hear about what's what's happening with you. Whoosh. What's cracking? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's talking about like. So lame. You know, the men are trying to like bail out the water with a ladle and a tub and they're trying to pump it out with a pump. And all the sailors like are as a matter of life and death trying to bail out this ship. You know, they're like getting the helm. They're taking to the sails and the sheets and all this stuff. And even and Iniarello climbs up to the crow's nest to see like, okay, we're in a bad spot. Like where is the nearest piece of land that we can direct ourselves towards? Because we got to set anchor somewhere because this is not going to be good for us. And so he gets out his long distance spyglass and he measured the distance of a hundred miles with the two spans of the glass, mm. which I'm like, you're in this crazy violent storm and you, and you have uh, like a hundred miles of visibility. No. Yeah. I'm like, not to mention like the curvature of the earth makes that impossible. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Flat earther Ian Ariello. Um, <clears throat> oh, wait. No, just kidding. This is, uh, this is after Columbus. Never. <laughs> I was, they should know better. I suddenly was like, wait. <laughs> They were flat earthers. So if that doesn't make you, uh, you know, refuse to continue to suspend your disbelief, then you're going to hate this next part. Because <laughs> as he's up there in the crow's nest, he saw a male and a female dove flying by, which that's not the incredulous part. I mean, maybe a little <laughs> bit because it's like, a, again, a crazy storm. But the doves land on a mast. I'm like, really? A male and a female? <laughs> I'm incredulous. <laughs> So they land on the mast and the male dove says, coo, coo. And the female dove answered, what's the matter, my husband? Why are you complaining? <laughs> <laughs> so he speaks to her in complains, apparently, in uh, dove language. And she replies in, I was going to say English, but I guess Italian. Um, and the male dove's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. This poor prince, he bought a falcon to give to his brother, but as soon as he hands his brother this falcon, this falcon's going to go and it's going to gouge his brother's eyes out. Oof. And whoever doesn't bring this falcon to him or warns him about what's going to happen is going to get turned into a piece of marble. It's just a terrible situation here. That's And we know what that brother does to pieces of marble. Yeah. You don't want to be a piece of marble in the presence of that brother. <laughs> let me tell you. And so that's why the male dove was complaining. And then again, he says... Coo, coo. And the female dove's like, oh, are you still complaining? Is there something else? And the male dove's like, well, yeah, there's actually one more thing that kind of sucks. He <laughs> bought a horse. See this horse? The first time that this, that this guy's brother rides the horse, he's going to fall and break his neck. And whoever doesn't bring this horse to that brother and whoever warns the brother about what's going to happen, they're going to turn into a piece of marble. Coo, coo. <laughs> And then uh, the female dove's like, oh, dear, so many cuckoos. It's like, what else do we have on the cutting board? And the male dove's like, oh, man, look at this. He's bringing his brother a beautiful wife. But the first night that this guy's brother goes to bed with this beautiful wife, they're both going to be eaten up by a terrible dragon. And whoever doesn't bring this new beautiful wife to the king, to the brother, or warns him is going to get turned into a piece of marble. And that said, the storm ended. And the sea's ill temper and the wind's anger passed. But a much larger tempest began to rise in Ian Ariello's breast on account of what he had just heard. 
because he was listening to this whole conversation between these clairvoyant <laughs> doves. And so he's like, oh man, like what am I going to do? He, he wanted to throw the falcon and the, the horse and this woman like into the sea so they couldn't cause his brother harm. But he's like, oh man, but if I do that, then I'm going to get turned into marble. And so like I'm in a really tough spot right here. So what did he decide to do? It says that he decided to pay more attention to his proper name than to his family name. Because after all, his shirt is tighter than his jacket. Mm. Again, another good metaphor, but it's just like, you know, he, his, he loves his brother, but, you know, his own uh, being turned into a stone has a lot more of an impact on his own life than his brother's eyes getting gouged out, neck broken, and getting eaten by a dragon. Yeah. Which is like, you know, if you go through all this, like the different schools of ethics, this is probably one of those, like do the least amount of harm. It's like not utilitarian necessarily. Maybe it is utilitarian. Uh, no, not really, because it's not doing the best, the most, the least harm for the most number of people, because there's going to be two people eaten by a dragon. Yeah. So, but it's one of those, you know, one of the, those schools of ethics could justify the decision that he's making. Probably not one of the good ones, but. <laughs> but one of them, nonetheless. But one of them. Because anything I learned about ethics is that, like, you just have to pick the one that says that you can do what you want to do. Yep. And it's ethical that way. That's my ethics. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> My ethics is I do what I want. Mind your business. <laughs> when the ship arrives at the port of Shady Thicket, the king, seeing the ship return, was waiting on the shore, super excited to see what his brother had brought back for him. I hope it's someone I can bone. <laughs> when the king heard that he'd brought, and he, but when the king heard that the prince had brought the woman, he was like, oh my gosh, so excited. And then when he saw her, and saw that like she looked exactly like her statue, exactly like the picture on her Tinder profile. Mm. He felt such joy that the excessive load of happiness nearly killed him under its burden. He was happy nigh unto death. Wow. And so, you know, as Iniel is getting off, he's got the falcon on his arm and the king's oh, like, man, Whoa. just now in my head when you said when he's getting off, I was like, oh. And then I was like, oh, no, you're... They're talking about the brother the getting ship. off of the ship. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. Ian Ariello <laughs> getting, off, getting off the ship with the falcon in his hand. And the king's like, he's like, what? What is that falcon you've got here? And so Ian Ariello's like, oh, yeah, I brought you this falcon to give to you as a gift. And so the king is like, oh, so touched. He's like, oh, my gosh, brother. It's like, it is obvious that you love me so much. Like, you did everything you could to make me happy. It's like, if you hadn't brought me already brought me this like great treasure of a wife like you couldn't have pleased me any more than with this falcon and so as the king is about to take the falcon from Ian Ariello's hand Ian Ariello quickly takes out a knife that he always carries at his side and chopped the falcon's head off right in front of his brother oh, his brother and wow this is the best thing you could have got me besides a wife and he's like you're welcome and so at this, the king was understandably stunned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was like, "Happy birthday to the ground." That's an <laughs> that's another Lonely Island reference. Yeah. If you're singing something and I don't know what it's from, I assume it's a Lonely Island reference. But that one I did happen to know was one indeed. And so, like, the king is just like, "Oh my gosh, what is that's crazy!" Like, my brother is like just must be an absolute madman. What is going yeah. on? But also, you know, like this happy moment of his brother coming back, bringing in this great wife, like the king did not want to interrupt 
didn't want to, did not want to put a, a damper on the kind of happy feeling, good vibes that were happening up until the Falcon decapitation. So he didn't <laughs> say anything about it. He's just like, Oh, okay. Like we're just going to let that one slide up until the Falcon decapitation. <laughs> And so the king, he's going around, he sees the horse. He's like, oh my gosh, whose horse is this? This is like amazing. It's beautiful. And, you know, he hears like that. Oh yeah, this is another gift that the brother had brought back, you know, for the king. And so he's like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I can't wait to ride it. And so just as he's, you know, getting it all set up, the stirrups were being held in place for him. And the king's about to climb on this horse's back, jump into the saddle. Ian Ariello takes out his knife. Maybe it's a different knife. It says a cleaver which would be needed because he chops yeah. the horse's legs clean oh, off yeah. with this cleaver right out from under the king who's about to get on it to ride. <laughs> and the king was absolutely fuming mad because he's like, what the heck? Like, why is my brother like getting me these amazing presents because he loves me so much, supposedly, and then just like murdering them yeah, <laughs> in front of me? <laughs> what kind of a game is this? And so he was like so angry, his guts began to churn. Churn. Sounds like I said churn. It did. <laughs> His guts began to churn. But again, it seemed like it was the wrong time to be resentful about it because his brother did bring him this beautiful bride. And so, again, he doesn't say anything about it. And so when the king gets back to the palace, he invites all the lords and ladies of the city to a big feast in the main hall. And everyone comes dressed to the nines and starts to have like a big dance party and a banquet And essentially, it doesn't say this, but it's kind of like essentially, I think, like the wedding party. Yeah. Seems like. Especially if they hook up afterwards, that's usually a sign. Because, you know, after the dancing was over, after they polished off this huge banquet, the happy couple went up to bed. And Ian Ariello, knowing what was going to happen if his brother and his new bride indeed did hook up, that they'd be eaten by a dragon. Mm -hmm started to worry about his brother's life and was figuring out a way that he could save him from this. He's like, Falcon, easy to kill. Horse, legs chopped off. You know, it's a domesticated animal. It won't see it coming. It won't see this betrayal. I can do that. Um, But a dragon, that's another story. So, Ian Ariello sneaks up into his brother's room and hides behind the couple's bed, waiting vigilantly for the dragon to come. Which, like... I don't know. I don't want to bring this up, but I'm going to anyway. It was after <laughs> the king had gone to bed with this woman mm-hmm. that the dragon was going to come. And he's hiding behind their like headboard like yeah. this entire time. Yeah. Super awkward. But anyway. Yeah, like a pervert. <laughs> yeah. And after the king had been with his wife, a hideous dragon did indeed enter the room and started shooting out flames from its eyes, smoke from its mouth. And it says that it was such a horrifying fright that it would have made a good middleman for the sale of Apothecary's Woodworm, <laughs> which is like, man, this dragon's so scary. It would make a great mascot for uh, <laughs> some snake oil uh, crap that uh, <laughs> is sold by an absolute quack of a doctor that thinks, you know, bleeding you is the way to cure you of all illnesses. Leeches for your face. Yeah. Leeches for your face. And so it was like, you know, Ian Ariel is terrified. And so he like jumps out with his sword. He starts to thrash around, chopping at this thing, delivering blows left and right. And, you know, with some other blows that he landed on the dragon, he landed one like accidentally on one of the columns of the king's bed. And he just like chopped this column of the bed like straight (laughs) in half. Uh, At the sound of this fight going on, the king awoke and the dragon disappeared. Oh, yipes. And so when the king saw (laughs) 
he, he awoke out of a dead, blissful sleep uh, to find his, like one of the columns of his bed chopped in half, his brother who had just murdered two animals in front of his face, standing at the foot of his bed with a big sword, uh, mm. rightly freaks out and he calls his guards and he's like, hey, come in, my brother's a traitor. He's coming to try and kill me. And so a number of people, you know, guards and stuff, run in, grab Ian Ariello, and they tie him up and take him to prison for, you know, maybe attempting to murder the yeah. king, they think. Look, like, I can't even blame him. Like, no. The dragon disappeared. He's acting, like, erratic. Yeah, it's like, I would do the same thing in this king's position. Like, I think the fact that he didn't have, like, brother, like, murdered right on the spot just shows the love that a brother has for a brother who <laughs> got him a really hot statuesque wife statuesque that was wonderful <laughs> so the next day the king summons his council tells him what's happened and he's like man listen to this my brother comes back he says he brought me this falcon for a gift chopped his head off then you know they they take me this horse that they say is also a gift for my brother i'm about to get on it boom he chops his leg off that horse is dead like and then he hides behind my bed and while i'm sleeping jumps out and starts chopping my bed to pieces and like screaming like a madman, like yeah, it's pretty freaky. I'm scared yeah. for my life. Like this is this guy's insane. He's committed enough crimes. Like the only thing we can do is put this guy to death. And at that, Liviella was like begging the king, like, no, please don't put him to death. Please don't put him to death. Because she, I guess you know, she had a long travel back, even though he obviously <laughs> displayed some uh, deficit of character by tricking and kidnapping her. She, you know, maybe developed some Stockholm syndrome. Like, oh, he's kind of a nice guy on this whole trip back uh, to the kingdom. But even these prayers and pleadings were not enough to soften the king's hearts. And so the king says to her, he's like, you obviously don't love me, my wife, for you have more esteem for your brother-in-law than for my own life. It's like, you saw that dog of an assassin with your own eyes when he came to make mincemeat of me with a blade that could have split a hair in two. If that column of my bed hadn't protected me, column of my life, you would be a bald widow by now. And so with that, he ordered his brother to be executed. And Ian Ariello, hearing the decree, was like, dang, well, you know what? This sucks. Look at this terrible state that I've gotten into for trying to do something good. This happened because I went out, I got my brother these amazing presents. And for whatever reason, I don't think he thought the doves like cursed him, but he was like, this whole weird curse that I had nothing to do with, I was in a hard spot. Like, I couldn't not give the things to yeah. him. And if I did and I didn't do something about it, like, these things were going to, like, hurt him and then kill him. He was going to get eaten by that dragon. Yeah. He's like, I was trying to do this thing by saving my brother's life, but look where it got me. No good deed goes unpunished. So he's weighing his options at this point. Yeah. He's like, if I stay silent, if I don't say anything about this whole, like, story why I did these things, then I'm going to get my head chopped off at my brother's command. But if I do say something, then I'm going to turn to stone and I'm going to, you know, just spend the rest of my days trapped inside of stone. Um, and so he's like, what am I going to do? And he's like, you know what? If I'm going to die either way, then I'd rather die telling the truth. I would die and everyone would know that I was an innocent man yeah. than, you know, be sent from this world with my head removed from my shoulders and everyone think that I'm a traitor. Yeah. And so he decides he's going to tell his brother everything. Cost-benefit analysis. Which, again, that's, that's the right choice. I think the ethicists, too, would, you know, a, the good ones would be like, you know what, buddy? That's the right choice to make. The truth shall set you free, even if you're actually going to be trapped in stone for <laughs> telling it. The truth will set you free. 
metaphorically, but physically you're, you're stuck. And so Ian Ariello sends word to the king. He's like, hey, I want to talk to you about something important before I die. And so he starts off and he tells his brother this whole thing. He's like, man, you know what? I love you. I've loved you so much. That's why I went and I went to do this thing. I wanted to make you happy. That's why I got you these presents. He tells through the whole story of what had happened, going out, buying the presents, how he tricked uh, Liviella in order to get her on the ship so that he could satisfy his brother's desires. Then he starts to tell him about the doves, what he heard the doves saying about the falcon. And so that like, if he didn't bring him the falcon, that he was going to get turned to stone, yeah. but that these bad things were going to happen if he did. So he tried to find like that middle ground and that's why he cut the thing's head off. And so he killed it without revealing the secret. And so as he's saying this about the falcon, his legs start to harden and turn into marble. And then he goes on in the same manner talking about the horse. And he says, you know, if like I gave you the horse, it was going to break your neck. And so as he's telling this, the truth about the horse, he starts turning to stone up to his waist. And then he gets to the part about the dragon. He tells about like the dragon was to come, the dragon came. I was trying to save you. That's what happened. And so with that, telling him about that, he turns completely to stone and is standing in the middle of the hall in front of the king like, a statue. And seeing this, the king is like, oh man. And he started blaming his own self and his own like rash judgment that he passed on his brother, which again is like, dude, no, I wouldn't blame yourself. Like, how were you supposed to know? Nah, don't go too hard on yourself. Yeah. Like it does suck. Like your your brother, your brother was acting kind of erratic and crazy. You had every right to be yeah, afraid. You made the right choice given the information that you had. Who were you to know that there was some crazy curse placed <laughs> on you? Or on your brother, whatever it was. But anyway, so he's like, but it was it was kind of this moment where, you know, the brother is dying essentially. But before yeah. he's dying, he's able to come back and they end things like on good terms. But the but the king is super sad. Like for more than a year, every time he thought of his brother, he's he cried a river of tears, it says. And in the meantime, Liviella gave birth to two sons. And it says that these two sons were the most beauteous things in the world. And so one day the queen went out to amuse herself in the countryside and the king was at home with the children and they were in the middle of the hall where the brother statue still stood. And so the king is looking at the statue. He starts crying and just seeing, you know, this like reminder of what had happened and how he'd kind of like taken his brother's like life from him, from his rash decisions or whatever. And at that time, a big old man comes into the hall. And he had like a big beard, big long hair, and he bows to the king and he's like, King, your highness, what would you pay if I was able to return your brother to his previous state? And so the king's like, oh man, I would give like my whole kingdom. And the old man's like, yeah, you know, your kingdom's not quite the type of payment that is going to suffice for this. That is a payment of riches, but since this is a matter of life, we have to pay for it with another life. And so because of the love he had for his brother, and because he also felt guilty for being the one who had kind of done this to him, he's like, I would exchange my life for his as long as he comes out from that stone. I'd be happy to be stuck inside the stone myself. I'd be happy to take his place. Yeah. And the old man's like, okay, like that would work. But you know what? Without risking your own life, like maybe we could find some other solution. Like, you know, the blood of these two children is probably enough to match, you know, the blood of like one man just by volume, I guess. <laughs> And so if like, if we smear the blood of your children on this statue, that would be enough to revive him immediately. And the king's like, you know what? I can always make more children. No. <laughs> as long as the mold for these little dolls still exists, more can be made. Oh, yeah. But let me have my brother back for I can never hope to have another. Which 
is terrible logic. You can always, I don't know what the ethicist would say about that. <laughs> you can always have more kids, but you can't have more brothers. Unless your parents can have more kids. But I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, they, they might not be able to, depending on age and whatnot. But also, this is just a terrible justification. <laughs> so the king makes this sacrifice, kills his children, smears the statue with their blood, and immediately his brother comes back to life. And the king and the prince, they hug, and they're like super happy at being reunited. There was more rejoicing than can be described, it says. Next sentence. At the very moment, those poor creatures were being put into a casket so they could be buried with the honor they deserved. Yipes. It's like, uh, yeah, let's not forget about the fact that you're rejoicing over, like, the bodies of the murdered yeah, children. Yeah, like, yay, you're back. This is the best. Let's tuck these kids into a casket and move on. Yeah. And at that moment, the queen comes home. And the king's like, okay, we're going to, like, surprise her real good. So you hide, brother. And I'm going to go talk to her. And so the brother hides and the king goes to talk to his wife. And he's like, hey, my love, what would you pay to have my brother return to life? And the queen is like, oh my gosh, I would give the whole kingdom to have your brother come back to life. And the king's like, well, maybe not the whole kingdom, but would you give the blood of your children in order for him to come back to life? Mm. And she's like, um, no, absolutely not. I would not do that. Big no. She's like, I would not be so cruel as to tear out the pupils of my eyes with my own hands. And so the king's like, well, I killed the children so that we could bring my brother back to life. And look, here he is. And like the brother comes out alive and then he then gestures to his children in the casket. And she understandably <laughs> was very upset. Uh, yeah. She started screaming and crying and she's just like, Saying like, oh, my children, my children. Oh, man, it's just like so horrible. I can't. It's like she says a lot of like, who filthy the windows of the sun in this way? Who bled the principal vein of my life without a physician's license? My children, my children, my children. They're like, you know, yeah. going on about how yeah. horrible this is, which it is horrible. Yeah, she's like uh, like completely devastated because like what kind of a sicko yeah. would make that trade a man? Yeah, and she's talking about like, <laughs> you were pierced by the iron and I am run through by pain. You suffocate in blood. I drown in tears. And then she says, basically to uh, her husband, uh, you have killed a mother to give life to an uncle. For I can no longer weave the canvas of my days without you. Lovely counterweights on the loom of this black life. You know, so it's like she can't live her, her life without him. It's like just so sad. Yeah. A, a, a perfectly reasonable response. Yeah. To your children being murdered. And he's like, what? But my brother, can't you? Isn't it great? <laughs> and so she's, she's, you know, like just, so like carried away in her grief that she's like, you know, I can't, I can't live in this world any longer. Like if you're not in it, then I'm going to follow in your footsteps and I'm going to come looking for you in the afterlife. Yeah. And so she is saying this, she runs to a window and is about to jump out when at that very moment, her father, the necromancer mm -hmm. enters through that same window in a cloud. <laughs> and he says, stop. What an icon <laughs> coming down in a cloud. Sorry, continue. And then he says, like, stop, Liviella. After I took this journey and I performed these three services, I've had my revenge on Ian Ariello, who came to my home and stole my daughter from me. And so I turned him into stone for many months. And so with that, I've been repaid. He's been punished for the crimes that he committed. And so as far as I'm concerned, we're square. 
All's well that ends well. <laughs> Just a, an, another Shakespeare title. Well done. <laughs> so he's like, look, by having you stuck inside stone for several months, like that repaid the crime that you committed by kidnapping my daughter and stealing her away from me. But on top of that, you've had to come and see these two children, these two jewels of children murdered by their own father. And of course, like I have mortified the king by making him have to be the criminal judge of his own brother who is actually trying to save his life and then make that same king the executioner of his own children. It's like, I wanted to shave you, not fillet you. Mm. So all of this has gone a little too far. Okay, you think? And so he says like, and so he says, look, get your children and I'm going to embrace you as my son-in-law. I forgive your brother, Iñarello, for everything that he did because he's such a great brother. He did it out of his love for you. And with that said, the children came in back to life and they started hugging their grandpa because they were super excited to see him. Like, ah, grandpa. (laughs) You got us killed, grandpa. And so Iñarello as well starts like jumping for joy the fact that his little nephews didn't have to be killed and they start having, (laughs) what? 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 Okay. So it says here, Ianariello partook in this happiness too as a third party, since after jumping through so many hoops, he was now swimming in macaroni broth. (laughs) That's like the most Italian thing. (laughs) But even with all the pleasures that he experienced in life, the dangers he had been through never left his mind. He reflected on his brother's mistake and on how careful one must be in order not to fall into a ditch, since every human judgment is false and twisted. So it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. he got to celebrate and be happy. It was like, but just because it worked out in this time, let's remember that humans can't be judging other people because human judgment is false and twisted and messed up. And that is the message that the storyteller leaves us with at the end. <laughs> was it the lesson that the story taught? Nah. Debatable. So interesting to note that this story, like I said, it's not an ATU type seven, what was it? 709. This is an ATU type 516 Faithful John. The reason why it's called Faithful John is because the most famous of that tale type is inside of the Brothers Grimm collection, Mm. Faithful Jonas. And so, you know, a lot of the tales that are found in the Brothers Grimm were written down at earlier times in other places, like The Tale of Tales by Jean-Baptiste Basile. And the Brothers Grimm thought that this was, The Tale of Tales was just one of the most excellent compilations of fairy tales like ever collected. And one of the Grimm's brothers, I want to say it was Jacob, he wanted to be the person to translate them into mm. German. German, presumably. Yeah, but he didn't end up being the one that did that, but he apparently did write like the foreword when somebody did translate them. And so like the Grimm's brothers very much knew about these tales and would have known about their influence in the stories that you know were circulating all over Europe at the time. It's just really interesting to me that while we have a Snow White version that is found inside the Tale of Tales, we don't see that the black, white, and red, especially where it has to do with the looks 
that a person is looking for in a single woman where you're like, oh, I want her to be as white as marble, as black as a crow. (laughs) And as red red as the blood blood of a crow. We'll see in part two, another tale that includes those three colors when you're looking for a woman. And it's really interesting, like where those colors come from, because, uh, you know, we'll see when we do finally tell the Grimm's brothers story, what the person was looking at when they named the three colors. And it, it's really interesting to me, you know, what, what those items are like, what the white thing is, mm. what the black thing is and like what the yeah. red is. Um, cause they're different for every tale. So just like, just some closing thoughts about color. I just wanted to talk about um, color and culture. A lot of times people want to pull out like, like, oh, white is for like innocence or like red is for passion or like black is for like, I mean, some people are like black is for evil or oh, black is <laughs> for uh, the inward journey inside of all of it. You know, like they want to pull out some yeah. like cultural representation for color but color and the meanings that we assign color is very very culturally based because there is nothing about colors that just naturally come with meaning we as human beings assign meaning to those colors and so the meaning that is put on the color red in a story in Europe is going to be different from the meaning that is assigned to the color red in like China. And it also is very time based. Right. Like the color pink right now in this like period of time, like pink has been seen as like a very feminine color. And I'm thinking of the United States in particular. Uh, Mm -hmm. The color pink has been seen as a really like feminine color. And in other places, or in earlier times, even in the United States, it wasn't seen as a feminine color or girl color. It could be like a color for anything. And in some places it was a masculine color. Yeah. Usually because of its association, like with the color red, like how it's um, tied in there. And it's really interesting to see like right now in this time and place, like the color pink has been used as a feminist symbol It's like a reclaiming of pink where it's like, okay, if you're as a culture going to assign pink as a feminine color, we're going to use it as the ultimate like feminist color. Hence the Barbie movie. Hence the Barbie movie. Uh, And that's been really interesting to see in this time in this place, like right now is the amount of people who, you know, had put on like pink clothes and stuff and, and went out, had their picture taken at the movie theater with all their friends wearing pink and been like, no, like this is us. This is this meaning. And the same way, you know, is that, you know, illustrates that time and place matter with like cultural context. When we Mm -hmm. look at the colors, it's really important to look at what the colors communicate in the stories. And one thing that we've already seen inside of the tales, especially the one that I told, is the color black as it was referenced and referred to 
as it pertained to Lucia. And it's a lot of like really, really negative stuff, but it sets up these two women as opposites of each other. And unfortunately, some of like the racism that we'll be, you know, discussing, especially in like the next part, shows that they're setting up these opposites as one is good and one is bad. That one color of a person is bad and the other color of a person is ultimate beauty. Mm-hmm. And that's a uh, like very racist conversation, you know, that the story is telling there and like setting up there. But it also gives us an idea within the text itself what those colors mean in that cultural context, which is helpful clues to us, even if what it points to is less than savory. So join us next time for part two, where we discuss these uh, really just lovely topics. (laughs) But also the stories will be fun, even if the conversation is serious. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar And thus we see that eating paste will make many a man's hearts fall out of their buttholes.